world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions, gamers dominate the tabletop, and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies, and fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. Come back here and fight, you coward! It's just a flesh wound! And tonight, we're going to be talking about flesh wounds, major wounds, minor wounds, wounds to the heart, all kinds of wounds. Because tonight, we are going to be talking about injuries in popular culture. And the way popular culture portrays damage to the human body, the human psyche, the human soul. We're going to be talking about how, in popular media, they look at injuries. So, Don, let's start with that. How are we going to define an injury for this discussion? (laughs) Well, that's quite the build-up. Uh, I think what we can do is, well, when we when we talk injury, I think for the most part, we can limit it to physical injuries and, and ailments. They're, oh, come on. Wounds to the heart are the most deep of all. That's, that's what I've been taught my whole life. That, that's what songs have taught me my whole life. You're telling me they're lying to me? We're, words hurt, too. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll get Feels it. before reels, man. Feels before reels. <laughs> Oh man, we 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 will get into that because there's a lot of crossover. Uh, okay. be, because I think when you talk about wounds and injuries and in that, uh, the reason it's it it's not as specific a topic as it sounds because what we're actually sort of getting at is the idea of reconciling what you're writing with, I guess you'd say, the rules of the setting and mm-hmm. audience expectation in a lot of uh, a lot of times. I can see how those intersect. Okay, that makes sense. Um, And when you think about it, I guess this is going to mostly be a discussion about writing in a lot of ways, or about, as you said, the way writers deal with injury in media, because after all, you know, when you're writing, part of it is showing the effect of people taking action. That's a huge part of what writing and storytelling is. Mm -hmm. So naturally, injury is going to be a big part of that, or the consequences of violence or lack thereof as the case may be is going to be a big part of how we perceive injury yep and uh what you're kind of uh running into is the idea that uh one of the first things you have to deal with when you're writing Mm -hmm. is every genre brings with it uh certain rules and certain expectations and that's something you have to you have to kind of deal with like if you're writing a comedy Mm mm-hmm uh, your audience is going to have certain expectations as opposed to, say, an action story or other kinds of story. And how you handle things like injury tends to be a big part of setting that tone. Right. No, no, that makes total sense. About more specifically, you're setting the tone by not the injury itself exactly, but the way the damage is portrayed. Yeah, uh, it goes back to the old uh, cowboys and Indians thing. Sorry to you know go to wet or westerns where it says like bang bang uh, and he falls over and all these people are dying bloodlessly as like bullets are flying everywhere. 
that actually set the tone for those stories. That's what made them good family fun is that even though people are dying, there's no actual uh, damage. They just fall over. Yeah. And it, it's another one of those weird, um, because when you talk about the Westerns, there's kind of the two constraints. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them is the social aspect where, like you say, especially when you get, because we've talked about Westerns that have been kind of our example of the idea that things start serious. Mm -hmm. uh, you build an audience, you age up with your audience when they age out, you water it down for kids. Then you do the process again. Because when you get to, say, the 50s, like our parents' generation, mm -hmm. the Westerns were bloodless. And part of it was because, again, they didn't want to make it too gruesome for the kids. Mm -hmm. And the other part was budget and, and effects. Yeah, those were all factors. Oh, do keep in mind also that the Westerns we're often talking about are TV Westerns. Yeah. So they literally couldn't show that stuff because there were rules. Yeah. Um, that was at least I think there were. That's something I'd have to look into because I know that the whole idea of censorship in early television was a little bit. Uh, they definitely had censors because you can watch Milton Berle's show, Texaco Star Theater. He actually has routines. You can find them on YouTube about him making fun of the censors because he did not like his censors at all. Um, yeah. It's very clear, as, as no comedian would. But I don't know what the rules were for early television, whether they were strict or even or looser than they are today. I suspect they're a little bit different, though. I, I think for the networks, they were strict because you have to remember, too, this kind of um, uh, broaches that idea of audience expectation that you could get away with things if people are expecting you to get away with things. Mm. Uh, so if I'm watching like uh, what became Family Hour, like the, right. the, the primetime hour in like the 50s or the 60s, we're expecting the family to be sitting in front of the TV. Uh, nothing too controversial, nothing too shocking. Mm -hmm. However, if I'm watching something like PBS, PBS was generally considered a little more serious, a little sober, highbrow for an older mm -hmm. audience. As I recall, oh, shoot, was it the 60s that PBS in the States actually did, um, I think it was Julius Caesar that had nudity in it. Right. I think that I don't was, know, I'm afraid. Oh, there was something to that. If, I think it was Julius Caesar. And they could get away with stuff like that. Because it was considered to be highbrow, and it's it's erotica, if it's highbrow. That makes sense. Yep, porn. yep. And again, it was considered that it's an older audience. Like, the kids aren't going right. to sit around watching Shakespeare. Well, that's exactly right. The kids are not going to sit through it just for a couple uh, boobies at some point. Well, in the 60s, you might. Yeah, only if you knew the boobies were coming. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I, I agree a hundred percent with you. After, as someone who watched like puzzle porn on uh, you know scrambled TV <laughs> cable TV back in the uh, teenage years of the late eighties, early nineties, young guys will sit through a lot for boobies. There's no question on that. <laughs> but you have to know that they're coming or that they're in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Boobies. Anyway, so <laughs> uh, sorry. And we're off to a good start. <laughs> Exactly. Well, we got to throw in some sex to go along with that violence, don't we? That's true. Because <laughs> they go hand in hand. But but it does lead into a, a very valid point, which is, yeah, as you said, there are social constraints on what you can show. And that determines. And the weirdest thing is, being really jumping around here for a moment, this goes back to the early 80s in some ways. And the revival of the action genre, ranging from G.I. Joe cartoons, the A-Team, to all of those things where the bullets were flying constantly, and yet now they couldn't even show people being hit. Yeah. So suddenly you have all these this gunfire, and it's not even people falling over. They just literally just 
all the shots miss. Apparently everyone went to the Imperial Stormtrooper Academy or something. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what it is, but which sanitized it even further. And what I would argue did even more harm because if you show violence, but you don't show that violence having negative consequences in even the smallest level of someone being hit or falling over or whatever, even if it's you know bloodless, that's still consequences, right? That's still showing that no, people die from this stuff. But if you remove that, it messes everything up. Like it's sending a really bad message. Yeah, you're right. And that is also the idea that we're always saying that society's not a thing. It's a bunch of things. And when you mm, get when you, when you get that sort of thing, what you're seeing is um, things bumped together. So you had people, we, we've been lucky enough to talk to a few, mm-hmm. that when you get into that 80s era, they worked in animation. They were wanting to push things. They wanted to age things up a little bit, put more of an edge, more seriousness. Mm-hmm. But you also had another wave of concerned parents that wanted to tone it down. And that's where you get exactly right. Like the old G.I. Joe cartoon. That's one of the reasons they fire lasers. They weren't allowed to have bullets. Right. Although I thought in the original, like, either the original commercials, I think they did have bullets. Yeah. And in the original, I thought the original Mass Effect TV series, they had bullets too. No, and then I, they changed it after that. No, I think it was lasers because I distinctly remember... I think you're right about the ads, but the ads were something a little different. Right, uh, yeah. They because, were the comics where they very definitely had bullets. Yeah, because in the show, mm-hmm. if you remember, they all carried the same rifle. That was actually the rifle that came with the uh, the original Snow Job figure. Right. The first Arctic guy, and it's a laser rifle. Ah, uh, okay. And that's why they all carry, because it's not recognizable as a real weapon, and they mm-hmm. didn't want them. The idea was you didn't want kids doing something imitatable. So they're right. not going to get Makes their hands. What is an XB5 laser rifle and, and, and copy it? But then you had that other problem, like you were saying, that if you remember the, the old G.I. Joe cartoon, mm-hmm. uh, nobody got hit. What would happen is I would fire a, a heavy burst at you from the machine gun on top of my vehicle, knock the rifle out of you and your buddy's hands, at which point... Your third buddy I didn't see would then shoot the front of my tank with your rifle. The tank would blow up and I would somehow jump out just a second before and run away. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. That's pretty much how a G.I. Joe fight went. And that's what happened. And that lasted right up until Robotech. Mm-hmm. And Robotech, I think one of the things that they kind of got to, to fudge it with is that everybody knew it was Japanese. So the idea was that they got a little bit of a break because... It was definitely like, especially like Macross, it was an anti-war story. It was against mm-hmm. violence. They made it unappealing when they killed off everybody's favorite guy. Yep, yep. And it was like I said, that expectation. I said, well, this is uh, this is from Japan. It's a little bit different. And everybody mm-hmm. said, okay, and Japanese people are a little odd, I guess, maybe. Because if you notice... Well, actually, there's another catch, though. Uh, oh. With Robotech, it was syndicated. Which means that they didn't have network sensors uh, breathing down their necks. It was just one of those. Yeah, here's the cartoon. It's mostly, you know, mostly sanitized. And you know, if you have issues with it, you can always edit it for later viewings or something like that. Most of the most of these small stations showing it didn't really care that much. No, but it was still all the syndicated ones were still uh, cropped for violence. So GI Joe was syndicated. GI Joe wasn't the network one. Oh, that is true. That is true. And but, that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, but it was still tied with like some, you know, bigger name. 
Like it mm-hmm. was a bigger name thing, and it was still also it was representing Hasbro, so they didn't have the the network sensors breathing down their neck. They had the Hasbro sensors breathing down their neck. Well, they they would have had both, and that's that's again, but that goes to show the guys do, working in the syndicated stuff were generally pushing a little harder. Yeah, I can say that. Even though they were still censored, because I was thinking about that. That was why when you got the uh, the original He Man cartoon. Hmm. You never really like they're all carrying swords and stuff, but they never whack anybody with it. You use the sword to parry the energy blast, and then maybe you punch the guy, and he goes and flies off screen, and then you see him grabbing his head because filmation used the same animation over and over and over, sometimes in the same episode. And he'd grab his head and sneak away, going, "I'll get you next time, he man." And then they run away, so you know they're okay. So. Yeah, exactly. And that's the funny part, right? Is that they weren't even allowed to show people punching each other, really. So they always, so it's always that shot of like He-Man punching at the viewer or something like that. And then you see the other guy falling over backwards. Yeah. But they, they did all these tricks to prevent. I think the only physical contact they were actually able to do is a little bit of grappling and maybe like, and throwing. Oh, and the classic yeah. one where you run at He-Man and he, he grabs you and goes over on his back and kind of wheels and throws you. Yep. Yeah, you. you that was pretty much it. And you got to remember, like, basically, the original Masters of the Universe was the, um, it was the first of the half-hour toy ads. Mm-hmm. And you can really tell because they were, they didn't exactly know what to do. And this goes with what you were saying, that they were sort of trying to push the boundaries a little. Mm-hmm. But they didn't really know what to do because it's, even though it was syndicated, it's still very Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. True, true. Like it's it's really kiddied up and it's really watered down because Saturday morning was generally considered like kids' time, like little kids' time. It was. Oh yeah, yeah. And we did the, a whole episode on that. Yeah, and that was the idea that the the syndicated stuff they weren't exactly sure who their audience was. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the reasons you were seeing them taking a few more chances because they, uh, I got the impression they were looking to see who was out there at the time. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll have to see if we can find another person from this era who can explain a little bit more of this to us at some point. Like some of the actual... hmm? If we find a censor and actually find out what they were doing, that would be fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, that would actually. So if any of you worked as a TV censor during the (laughs) 1980s, um, and especially in children's television, please uh, let us know. Uh, Contact us at ObeyTheDNA. And um, leave leave a show note or something, or contact me and... Yeah, we'll, we'll get together. Mm. And we'll talk about it. Either that or I'll see if I can find someone at some point. Um, get the other side. from that era that would be fun to interview. But yeah. we'll get to that later. Yeah, because it's, it's funny when you talk about this because I can think mm-hmm. the, the first example of them trying to play with the idea of like violence in that mm-hmm. uh, for the sake of like television uh, it goes back further. It's the old, uh, the original Dick Tracy cartoons. Oh, okay. I've never watched those. So uh, I, you are going to have to explain what those are like to me in the audience. Oh, shoot. Oh, who, I forget who did them. But if you remember, there was, I think it was a 60s, like uh, the, the, the Patey Freeling looking kind of stuff. Like mm-hmm. if you remember the old uh, Inspector Clouseau cartoons from the Pink Panther. Right. And that kind of that like sketchy sort of artwork, it it looked like that, and they were definitely cartoony. Mm-hmm. It would be like one of the villains from the comic would be like, you know, he's stealing all the apples, and 
there were these like goofy ethnic stereotype cops that were like Dick Tracy's minions and he'd call one of them and they would offensively track down the villain and hijinks would ensue. It, it, if, if, you remember, right? if you remember the old underdog cartoon, it was very much, it might have been the same company. It was very much like the old underdog. Right. And it's wow, funny. you weren't you weren't kidding. No, you weren't kidding at all. I, <laughs> no. I was just looking at this. like here's Dick Tracy's sidekicks. I'm not kidding. They are Joe Jitsu, yeah. who's a parody of Ch- Charlie Chan and Mr. Moto, who um, is a martial arts detective and is always saying "so sorry, please excuse me." They yeah. are Hemlock Holmes, a bumbling Cockney Cockney police bulldog. Uh, Heap O'Calorie, which is voiced by Uncle Johnny Coons. Uh, I'm and. Manuel Tijuana Guadalajara Tampico Gogo Gomez Jr. Essentially a human version of Speedy Gonzalez. Mm. Yeah, those are his those are you, <laughs> you weren't kidding when you said his ethnic sidekicks. No, and it, it's nice to see they offended like everybody in there at the time. <laughs> and they were like five minute cartoons and there were hundred and thirty of them. Yeah, they they never they never I got like a stockpile of them downstairs and they don't end. No, they, they clearly don't. The very last one is at 130 is the Chinese cookie caper. Well, we can guess which, which <laughs> ethnic stereotype that involves. Um, so, wow. Okay, then. And it's funny to watch them because uh-huh. it's this weird, goofy, like, Saturday morning cartoon kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. When the comics were among the most violent, brutal, graphic things humanity has ever created like dick tracy yeah. and judge dread are like competing for gruesome body count like they really are yeah yep yes they are i've read them they are they're mm. horrifically horrific it's the only way to describe them <laughs> you spend two like almost two weeks watching flat top drown to death in yep. one in the one story yep yep and that's what a nicer deaths um uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's really horrific it's really oh, oh my god um, so yeah, if you ever read the original, you have to read the original ones before he becomes like the, um, goes into space and does all the other weird shit. No, but if you read even, the original ones, those are pretty gruesome. What? Even the sixties and seventies ones are still pretty brutal. Mm, okay. They're, they get a little science fiction and a little super spy silly kind of stuff. But in, in that era, if you remember his son marries mm-hmm. the, uh, princess of the moon people. Yes, yes, you mentioned and that before, yeah. She dies in a horrible flaming uh, car explosion when one of the mobsters is trying to take out Tracy. <laughs> oh, oh, that's nice. And in the 70s, they introduce uh, Angel Top, which was Flat Top's daughter, and she, um, at a reconstruction of the uh, of the tourist ship where her father drowned to death underneath it, she burns to death over the course of like a week and a half and in the restored version of the same shit. So no, no, even, even going into the, like the seventies and the eighties, they're still the same. Oh my God. Kind of fit They're They mid eighties, late eighties. They do kind of tone down a bit. Uh huh. And the newer ones are a little more toned down because they tend to be a little more story heavy, but no, for a long time, like especially the original Chester Gould ones though, are just brutal. <laughs> mm hmm. Yep. Yep. Well, again, the, he lived in a time when crime was kind of rampant, right? I mean, that, mm-hmm. and that was the point. It was supposed to be, you know, crime doesn't pay. And uh, these characters were supposed to be really despicable people that, uh, yeah, it, it, it is amazing what they got got away with in a newspaper strip, though. Like they were running in, was it uh, the Chicago Daily Tribune? I think it was. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, yeah, they it was and people rated it. I'm just looking at here. In 1937, they did a poll of adult comic strip readers by in Fortune voted Dick Tracy their third favorite strip after Orphan Annie and Popeye. <laughs> Which, as I recall, Orphan Annie features some gruesome death, and Popeye used to just punch people up for no reason. So. Yeah, Popeye was a little bit of a psycho. Anyway, yeah. Uh, anyway, well, uh, let's, let's let's move on. All right, so um, so we we we've kind of gotten off track, but Kinda. at one point we. Sorry? Hmm? Kind of. It'll come back. I think this is going to kind of come back. Okay. All right. So, as you were saying, um, cartoons are one of those things that they had to sanitize them right kind of from the beginning into one degree or another because, they, after all, they were meant for kids and such. And if you think about it, let's go back even further, not just cartoons, but even the old Laurel and Hardy skits, like the old uh, comedy shorts that they used to run, the Three Stooges, etc., they're doing things to each other in live action that would properly put each other in the hospital and would <laughs> cause serious bodily injury on a regular basis. And they did it every week and it was fine. So there was lots of sanitized comedy uh, violence way back when. Yeah. And, and I think again, that, that goes with what we were saying. It's the audience expectation that's dictating in both directions, what the audience will accept and what they expect. And that's why newspaper comics back in the day were considered like because they were ubiquitous. Everybody read them. Right. They were considered grown up fair. And that's why Dick Tracy could brutally murder bad guys. But if you tried the same thing in a comic book, which, as we talked about before, quickly had been relegated to juvenile entertainment, people lost their minds and called a Senate meeting because of that expectation. Mm. And it's that same idea that. If I'm watching a comedy, my expectation's a little different because watching like a grumpy old guy with a monk's haircut whack a bald dude with a, a monkey wrench is really a different kind of experience depending on the outcome, mm -hmm. depending on, on whether or not it's like I whack the bald guy and he goes <laughs> and then makes a funny face or if I whack the bat, the bald guy, his head splits open, he bleeds everywhere and he dies. <laughs> right. But that that and that again is that the that's the genre thing that when people know it's a comedy, they're mm -hmm. not expecting injuries to hurt. And if for whatever reason I'm writing comedy where I want injuries to hurt and people to die, like maybe I'm Shakespeare, mm -hmm. uh, then I've got to kind of work against type to right. resell the audience on that idea of fatality. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Or it becomes a dark comedy at that point where you're making fun of violence, right? In theory. Uh, which is your way of getting away with it without actually getting away with it, so to speak. You're just lampshading it at that point. It's like, yeah. no, 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 we're parodying violence. It's yeah. the last action hero. And and that's that's which everybody loved. But that again mm -hmm. is is how you get how you get away with that. And if you're a writer, you have to kind of at least if you don't know, guess where your audience is at coming in because that's going to 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 dictate like something like say last action hero i don't mm -hmm. think people were expecting it to be like a goofy parody like it was and that's one of the reasons it wasn't popular when it came out right like that was peak arnie and i think they wanted it instead of and again i've i've i've, I've said this before the movie's not a, a hilarious send-up it's the people writing it saying and you idiots are idiots for watching this stupid crap 
Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think it put the audience off that they might have felt insulted. And again, when you saw Arnie, you wanted Arnie. You wanted, you know, Terminator. You wanted, you know, you yep. know, the every you know, commando and all that. And they didn't do enough to set the tone for what kind of movie it was going. Because even the idea of having, he's got like this, like, spunky kid sidekick he's done that in like most of his movies like commando he's got like well she's a little older than a kid but she's still like the youthful spunky side even fucking well, she's not really a sidekick though because she's just locked up most of the movie so she's just there to be rescued no no in commando no not his daughter the um oh the, remember oh, you mean oh you're uh radon chong's yes yes okay he, i know he, okay yeah the spunky female sidekick who might as well be a kid yes yeah yeah, and, and he does that. Like I said, even in Predator, he's got like the spunky young sidekick through half of the movie. Kind of, yeah. Okay. Well, she's as useful as any of his other sidekicks. So That's true. <laughs> well, yeah, the generic token female character who's, you're right, there to basically be rescued and to be a maybe sympathy character at best. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. true. Okay, good point, good point. <laughs> um, we seem to, it's funny, we're talking about injuries in film, but we, and we, keep, we are already we like dove right into the eighties. Like the eighties became the most <laughs> natural point to actually talk about my fault. Totally on me folks. But, but again, that's for us, I think was the touchstone, right? Because we're children yeah. of the seventies and the eighties. So we grew up with the seventies where at least let's, let's talk about action. You were talking about comedy. Let's talk about action. We grew up with in the seven with seventies stuff where they actually tried to make the action a little more consequential. Cause that was a, it was an era of, um, we'll say social justice in a way where people were where people were trying to say something about society and make society a better place, and they wanted to show the consequences of actions. So the seventies had a lot of stuff in it, like Dirty Harry, for example, that you could argue was a reaction to the to the bloodless westerns of the sixties, for example, yep. um, where they actually were going out of their way to show consequences in the seventies stuff for many reasons, some of which was the visceral thrill of it. I mean. The rules about censorship had just been struck down at that point. And so they were like, whoa, we can do whatever we want because we don't have to follow the Hayes Code anymore. And so they were purposely making movies that were as violent as they possibly could and showing consequences whenever they could because now they could. Now they could do it. And so we got a lot of that. And then you get the 80s, which is almost this weird reaction to that, where it's a seesaw thing, where the 70s is all about consequences. In the 80s, the consequences almost completely disappear. And they, they go back to pure sanitized stuff. Yeah, I think there's another big reason for that. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of the reason why I hated 80s action movies. One of many, go. Yeah, it's it's because like now for myself, I, I think I've mentioned before in my family, you either end up in a gang or the military or both. Mm-hmm. So I was fairly well acquainted with, um, plus when I was young, there was a lot of shenanigans. I got injured a lot. I kind of had a grasp of like the reality of this sort of thing, like of injuries and what happens in a fight and what happens if you get a board broken over your head and stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's why 80s stuff bugged me in the seventies. Cause again, remember it was, it was high crime. You had a uh, Vietnam in the States. You had a lot of people going off to war. Yep. The average person was much more acquainted with violence. Yeah. Like in real were. In real life. And that's why, like, when you look at the exploitation flicks that come out mm-hmm. in, like, the late 60s, early 70s, they're absolutely brutal. And people loved it because it felt more genuine. Yeah. Because it, it wasn't that old square-jawed John Wayne, you know, takes out eight guys with his six-shooter and maybe one of them shoots his hat off at, at worst kind of thing. It was visceral. It was more 
it was more real. It's what people knew. And I think getting to what you were saying about the um, censorship laws being dialed back, I think that's part of a back and forth that they get dialed back because you had New Hollywood. New Hollywood took off, so the people Mm -hmm. making movies were more willing to fight to keep the, the questionable material in because they knew there was an audience for it. Right. And actually, that's something that we actually should bring up. I mean... Uh, the Hayes Code, I think, the Motion Picture Code, I think did have a thing about uh, violence in it. And wasn't, wasn't this like you had the uh, first version of a rating system as well? Yes. Well, the, they had early rating system, but the rating system was mostly a result of the, of the Hayes Code or disappearing, yeah. right? Because basically everything had to be G-rated. And then once everything didn't have to be G-rated, suddenly they're like, okay, how do we know what's good or bad for young people? And so they basically created the the rating system. Yeah. That was okay. that was the whole point. All right. So I'm just looking to see here. Um, special care has to be has to be taken in the the way the in the manner in which the following subjects are treated. To end the vulgarian suggestion in this that may be uh, that may be eliminated and good taste must be emphasized. Uh, use of firearms is one of them. Uh, brutality and possible gruesomeness. Techniques for committing murder by any by whatever method. Uh, let's see. They weren't show allowed to show actual hanging, sympathy for criminals, sedition, branding of people or animals, apparent cruelty to children and animals. Well, yeah. Let's see. No rape, of course. Uh, man and woman in bed together. When it's not rape, I mean, that's just, just in general. <laughs> excessive Excessive kissing. One of my, <laughs> but in general, right? They they generally were fairly limited as best they could in terms of you know violence, right? And yeah. the way to, the way to get in the Hayes Code's bad side or to have a problem with the office would have would obviously be to show the consequences of violence. So that's we get a whole lot of uh like that, and that's one of the reasons, right? They were very care they were very careful about that. Yeah, there, there's one exception to that, and the westerns provide a great example. Because that, that's why you always had bad guys that were like the mustache twiddling, you know, tying women to the train track, just like snidely whiplash bad guys, mm-hmm. was because if the hero shoots one of those guys down, it's justified. Right. Yeah, yeah. It, it kind of goes back, uh, Chester Gould, when he did the old Dick Tracy, he'd always said that mm-hmm. when he wrote it, uh, Tracy never shot first. Right. Yeah, it's always defensive. Yeah. So the bad guy takes a shot, misses, and then dies in a hail of gunfire if he's lucky. If he's not, he freezes to death inside like a an old World War II monument, which is how shaky bought it, as I recall. Yep. And, well, here, that's why the whole idea of Han shot first was, is such a big deal. Yeah. Because that even still goes to today. If you pay attention, you'll see that even in most action movies... Well, that's why there's almost always that shot that wings off the wall right near the hero before the hero starts firing. Yeah. That's because that's that way they shot first. Yeah. Like the hero is always justified because the bad guy struck first. They still do that now because yeah. it's just a standard, basically. The bad guy always has to shoot first because otherwise the hero is the one who's instigating violence. Yep. It It's also the same reason um to... to, to ju- jump genres a little bit mm-hmm, sure if you go into um dramas or if you go into uh quote unquote chick flicks 
mm-hmm. that have kind of a more dramatic or more like a suspense oriented thing. Mm-hmm. Very few times will the dramatic lead be the one that finishes the bad guy off. The bad guy is going to like fall off of something or get hit with something or like suffer some kind of coincidental death trap style injury because that way you can keep the hero of the story pure and still finish off the bad guy. Oh yeah, absolutely. The bad guy will usually end uh, as a result of their own actions. That's how they usually do it. Or the other way I, I, you occasionally see it is there will be a character who exists in the story purely to kill the bad guy. That's a fairly common one too. Yeah. Um, often a police officer, something like that. You know, the police officer who shows up at the last minute and, and you know saves the day, something like that, or so someone whose job it is basically to finish off the bad guy. You you'll find, and again, that's that's always there somewhere. Is that because the hero is supposed to be quote unquote pure to some degree? Yeah, in in certain stories it is. In certain stories, yes, in, yeah, in not, cer- not in action movies, but in certain yeah. stories. Action movies do the opposite. You know where else you see it a lot? Hmm? Disney films. Where? Oh yeah, hell yeah! Every Disney villain falls off a cliff. Yeah, or 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 gets hung, or it's it it's it's never. There's only one Disney film I can think of where really the 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 villain gets intentionally finished off. Which one? Little Mermaid. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's Remember, true. The prince runs the ship into uh, Ursula and stabs her to death. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. He stabs her with the front of the ship. Right, right. But that's literally, I think you're right, the only one. Yep, because again, it's that idea. You want to keep the hero pure. You, mm. you don't want to dirty their hands with murder. It's the same thing, like I said, um, if you're watching, um, like I said, if you're watching a movie that's kind of more of a suspense drama. Mm-hmm if they're focusing on the drama part, a lot of times that'll happen or that'll be where you see the idea that, you know, ah, oh, Farmer Bill came back at the last minute and blew up the bad guy before he could stab our hero in the heart kind of thing. Because right, it, right. it's it's that idea of, of, of purity. Whereas the action movie, you want the hero to finish off the villain in as gruesome and gory a way as possible with a witty line because it's cathartic, because they're the, um, the audience sympathy character for um a different kind of audience yeah they're for well for a male audience and for you're right a young male audience that you know sees the characters a wish fantasy character where that character on the screen that action hero is them in a way yeah well not even not just not just not just like young men because they they write stories like that for women too you started seeing that in the 70s sometimes well i mean women do go to action films but nowhere near to the degree that men do they don't because again it it's it's generally considered a guy thing. But no, there's plenty of them because they 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 started that idea in like I said mm-hmm. in the seventies. You really kind of saw it. Uh, the idea that like you know they killed her man and now she's back for revenge, or like they like set fire to her house and raped her dog and now she learns how to use a gun and becomes like um, Charles Bronson and and yeah. The female death wish thing, the rape yeah. and revenge female death wish thing, yeah, and you just because you almost always rape um, or 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 kill her family. You do see that, but they're much rarer and they're usually not as popular. Like they they exist. You're right; they totally exist. But I've never seen one. I don't think that actually became like a major hit. Like they're all they're generally kind of like middle of the road pictures. They just because a lot of the guys don't care, and none of women usually go to see them to really make them a major hit. Well, no, I can think of a I can think of a few that were actually 
technically big hits, but it's that idea. It goes back to expectation, right? Well, I mean, you get versions of it. Like the biggest one that's kind of a revenge thing is there's Thelma and Louise. But again, that's that's a little different. That's not that's yeah. not a revenge flick exactly. They just they kill a bunch of men, but it's not it's a revenge flick. It's not a revenge flick per se. Which ones are you thinking of? Uh, I'm I'm thinking, and this this I'll I'll say two words. You're like, yeah, okay, and and this will lead to kind of kind of what I was saying, getting into about expectation. I'll mm-hmm. say two words: Pam Greer. Okay, again, not major movies, but okay, they exploitation wise, they were they were popular. Yes, that's true. They, they were crazy popular, and it's because what happens where the expectation comes from, I mm. think, is it's it's one of those things, and we've talked about taste coming around. That the seventies, you had a bunch, uh, you had a bunch come out in like the nineties. It's any time where you're basically um, where the idea mm. of say female empowerment is an issue. Mm. And the media, because remember we said media always likes to take your outrage and sell it back to you. Yep. At the point where they're they're they finally realize, oh wait, chicks dig violence too. Let's do that, and then you get a wave of them, and then it goes back to again that old conventional thinking that you know the fourteen year old you know uh, revenge fantasy is typically a male thing, and then it it tip it resets back to type and it'll do that for a decade until again it, it comes back around it's it's part of the uh it's part of the uh the circle of entertainment life yeah the cycle of entertainment in yeah. some ways okay i could agree with that i like i said i don't think that they usually become that major i mean we can you occasionally do like get action flicks with you know women in the star and some uh, women female lead action movies they do exist and they they sometimes do okay i mean actually as the week we're recording this uh their day or so the new you know black widow movie is about to come out mm-hmm. uh, which will probably despite many things against it will probably make like close to a billion bucks so okay yeah mm-hmm. there, there's that yeah writing on 22 plus you know disney marvel films you know <laughs> having built it up i mean uh but yeah okay whatever um, so I'm not saying that women don't like action films. I think some of them do. Some of them like it very much. It just, but I don't think percentage wise, as many of them like them as men do. I'm, I'm going to kind of split the difference hmm. because I think it's another one of those things that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because I think they would, if they're ones that didn't suck. Uh, I would argue no, and I'm gonna I'm gonna point one thing out. Women, generally speaking, um, again, very generally here, are more empathic than men are. Like they connect with other people a little bit more than other human beings more than than men do. It's uh, it's kind of it's it's what it's what it's one of those things. Um, and so as an end result, they react more negatively in my experience to violence than men do. Like they do. <laughs> They do extend. They understand. Uh, how can I put this? When men see like fighting in that, they're there. It just makes their blood rush. But women, generally speaking, again, very generally speaking, here, I would say, again, this is just my experience and the women I've known and encountered. I generally don't seem to like violence that much. They, um, you know, most women would rather watch a, in my experience, would rather watch, this is where things get tricky. They would rather watch, say, a mystery movie or something like that. And, you know, they're okay with violence in the sense of murder. <laughs> they're totally okay with that. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, the whole mystery genre is pretty much written and dominated by women. It has been for decades. Uh, I get the Christie anyone. But 
when it comes to like quote unquote action action stuff, that generally seems to be an area where a lot of women are just like, ew, not interested. Just in my just in my own observation, you, however, do hang out. Well, I know, I know what you're going to say. You you know a number of women that do that love action stuff. But there's a catch: you are hanging out with women that are more predisposed that way. Uh, there is, and again, I think it it goes with that idea of expectation. Mm-hmm. Because, I, like I said, I don't think I don't think you're wrong, but I don't think you've got quite the full picture. Mm-hmm. Because again, like I say, I think it comes around every time, but you're you're again dealing against expectation because it's the same reason why like a lot of female types, they don't dig science fiction, but they dig sort of like fantasy, even mm. if you're telling the same story, because there's kind of again, it's that expectation that like we're sold this idea because for a long time, superheroes. Yeah, mm-hmm. for a long time, superheroes were generally considered a guy thing, especially, like, say, when we were young. They are. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say they were until the Marvel movies, and then everybody likes them. Male, female, right. etc. Everybody likes them because the idea was the movie separated a little from the comic. And mm. they're still doing the same kind of stories, but it's that idea that a lot of people who say aren't so into the action. And I'm going to say people, I'm not going to say male or female because right. if, if Japan taught us anything, it's that when you do your escapist entertainment, you can fudge everything in every direction and find an audience. Mm-hmm. But it, it was that idea that because superheroes had been sold as guy things, mm-hmm. a lot of females who might've gotten into, it, especially say like the Marvel stuff, which are basically just soap operas with tights. Mm-hmm. They never even bothered trying, but when you got to say like um, the '90s, when the Japanese stuff took over, because people could find it on their own, you mm. started seeing like I, I use the example of Naruto. That when Naruto was popular, it had like a forty percent female audience, which is unheard of for a superhero story. But it was because there wasn't that preconception that you know the up and coming generation was allowed to discover things on their own. No, 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 no. You're, I, I agree completely with that. Um, there's a catch, of course, which is the Japanese stuff, and this has been we, I think we talked about this in the exchange, not on the show before, about how the Japanese stuff, or maybe we have, is more character driven, right? Yeah. So in the end, that's one of the things that I think attracts uh, women much more to the Japanese stuff is because, again, and I don't mean character driven by, I don't I'm not saying soap opera or anything like that, but it's much more driven by the characters. The, the stories tend to come from the, rea- the characters' reactions and emotions and feelings, whereas American stuff generally is a lot more plot driven. And mm. so, we, and and men tend to actually be more okay with the plot-driven stuff. But if you don't give women good characters, they don't seem to be that interested. That's also true for men. But men seem to be as long as there's action, boobies. Men are kind of okay with it. Whereas women usually require <laughs> at least a little more to be there before they they'll get into it. Generally uh, speaking, yeah, I I, I think yeah, because I think back to when Homer Simpson met uh met uh Alan Moore. Hmm. Yeah, you know, or Alan Moore, where he's like Bart Simpson's, like I loved what you did with Radioactive Man. You loved what I made him like a psychotic drug fiend. No, I just like when he hits things. Yeah. Ah. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. The American, and this this goes back to our wounds of the heart that you were discussing. Mm-hmm. The American stuff did try to be soap operish, but when you look at say like especially eighties or nineties superheroes, they did it in like the worst possible ways. 
Well, I think most of the people who are writing it, assuming you're talking about the comics, yeah. were not uh, were not that skilled at it. Um, the only like the guy uh, was it? Oh, okay. There's Chris Claremont did X Men. Marv Wolfman did a did a yeah Titans. Titans. That's what I'm thinking. Marv yeah. Wolfman. There we go. Thank you. And Marv Wolfman doing uh, Teen Titans. They were okay at it. I would argue Claremont was better than Wolfman, but whatever. Personal mm-hmm. taste. Um, but the other people who tried to do that stuff generally were not very good at it. <laughs> Most, especially in mainstream comics. Some alternative guys were okay, were, were, were capable of doing it, but most of the mainstream comic writers and that were not very skilled at putting like drama and uh, you know the <laughs> personal stuff into their superhero adventures. It, they just weren't very skilled at it. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and and yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's being charitable, but yes. And yeah. that was just during the eighties. By the nineties, they just threw that shit out, and they're just like, no violence, extreme. <laughs> that's kind of where, and. And that's, you know, they took all the viol- they took out all the character bits from the X-Men and just focused on the violent bits and just made lots of that. And well, that's basically that's what it became. <laughs> that was the 90s. Yeah, it was. <laughs> Let's start breaking the stuff down. Because we're jumping all over the place. So should we be talking about, do we want to talk about comics or television? We've talked about television a bit, movies. How do you want to handle this? Well, I think, I think you're kind of... Uh... We're get we're we're kind of getting to to sort of the the nuts and bolts, mm-hmm. okay. yeah. Because because it's that idea like when you talk about the the heavy handedness and and not being good at it, mm-hmm. uh, getting to that whole concept of of violence is one of the ways that it really illustrates that because in very few stories uh, does the mayhem happen in anything that even half acidly resembles real life. That's very true. Uh, j- just well, like again, the melodrama. Fiction is automatically not real life by default, though. It's automatically it, like, you know, fantasy. The moment, no matter how quote-unquote realistic it is, it's ultimately still fantasy as soon as it's converted to fiction of any kind. You're right, but it also bumps up into the idea that you're dealing with audience expectation and you want some kind of internal consistency. Mm-hmm. And this is where um, you start running into problems. Like, uh, we mentioned comedy. You can kind of um, fudge a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Your characters have to be consistent, but kind of the laws of physics you can stretch depending on what kind of comedy you're doing. Right. Action heroes, you've got a lot of of uh, expectations. We mentioned superheroes. Superheroes are kind of an interesting case mm-hmm. because super superheroes, in a lot of ways, are when you talk about the laws of physics. And as demonstrated, the idea of violence, it's really a free-for-all. There, there's very little internal consistency because you start dealing with concepts that are difficult to wrap a head around and kind of difficult to fit into, like, say, plot and setting and not really freak the audience out. Okay, can you give me an example? Um, well, you use the, I'll use the example of, say, Superman. Okay. If you go back to, say, like, Silver Age Superman, Bronze Age Superman, he could change, like, the orbit of the moon. Mm-hmm. He could. And yet, when he punches, like, a bank robber, that guy doesn't just disintegrate. Yep. And it's 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 one of those things, when you go back to, say, like, the Golden Age, where nobody gave a shit, you, mm-hmm. could, you could write pretty much however you wanted, because people just wanted a thrill. They just wanted to see Superman do something freaky. They didn't care about continuity. 
Right. When you get to Bronze Age, you've got more long-term fans. It starts becoming an issue, and they start trying to come up with all kinds of ways to explain the weird physics mm-hmm. in a way to, uh, number one, again, because you want more of that consistency, but number two, you've got kind of an audience that's a little more grounded and a little more knowledgeable, and you're trying to satisfy that urge while still giving them the extreme thrills of having a dude, you know, change the course of Mighty Rivers. Mm-hmm. Like, that was one of the things that Marvel, when they started, uh, they were trying to avoid. They wanted things to be... Um, a little more grounded. Now, it didn't last super long. Mm-hmm. But that was one of the things that they were concerned with because you would have, like, characters that, you know, Superman would lift an apartment building and that building would collapse under its own weight as soon as you tilt it because they're only designed to resist force in one way. Yeah, that's a bit of a problem, isn't it? Yeah. So, eventually, they came up with the idea that Superman actually has a weird telekinetic ability that's holding that building together. Yep, yeah, his his oh was it his bio bio uh, bio something energy field that and that's why his costume mm-hmm. uh, when when he gets hit with like an energy bolt his costume doesn't disintegrate. Yep, because what you're actually looking at is he's basically got a force field around him. Yep, and he's extending it or contracting it or doing whatever to basically yeah protect his costume and also in theory you know keep building he can keep buildings from falling apart but he can't use it to actually protect other people which is odd but okay sure whatever well, well he can because that's how he can fly lois around the world in two minutes without her turning into oh that's true pasta. you're right otherwise she'd become yeah otherwise having a bug go into her eye at 800 kilometers an hour <laughs> would probably <laughs> do really nasty things um so yeah good point yeah, and, and that's one of the things that you start seeing with um, uh, some science fiction, especially like superheroic stuff, that you really kind of, especially when you get to like the 70s and the 80s, because you're seeing like, um, that was the age of the microchip, so people are thinking science again, and you start seeing these weird explanations to try to explain this stuff to the current mm-hmm. audience, to, to, to ground yeah. it more. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. It's it's an attempt to kind of explain everything and help, help the audience conceptualize it in a way that they'll agree with remember it's all about as you said the audience and all about what they will agree to and believe Mm -hmm. and if the audience does not believe in what you're saying it's like no it's stupid you've lost them at that point it's you're done and and that's why you can do something like uh clark Kent puts on like takes off his glasses nobody recognizes him Mm -hmm. because that first audience for the original superman stories had no expectations they'd never seen a character like this Yes, exactly. So anything you sell them, anything you say happens, they're going to they're going to agree and if it appeals to them, they'll accept it because they've got mm-hmm. nothing to compare it to. That's true. But then by the time you get to the 80s, a character like Superman's been around. Even if you've never read the comic, you've been exposed to him. Right. He's not fresh and new. There's some context. And again with the idea of the long-term fans come around in like the late 70s, the older fans they start questioning, and that's where you get the the idea that, like, in the DC Heroes role-playing game, Clark Kent's glasses have illusion at 185 APs. Which it, is astounding. It is, and, and, and it's a good joke, but it's because that idea that once people have a context to put it in, and they start asking those questions, mm-hmm. it takes audience expectations somewhere different, 
because people who weren't indoctrinated into say the superman genre from the earliest days are still are are still saying stuff like you know how, how can they not re- greatest uh, greatest reporter in the world my ass she can't tell her partner when he takes his glasses off that's very true yeah very very true and that's why most modern versions seem to just automatically just know she knows who he is <laughs> and they just skip yeah. it it is and again it, it's that but I it do- works on everyone else around him though everyone but her now it it does, and it's that idea that one of the reasons when you look at long-term things they like to do a reboot is because the idea of a reboot gives you a chance to kind of um, cop mm-hmm. those original ideas again. Mm-hmm. Because you're telling the audience, this is something totally new, we're starting totally over, and the hope is that they're not going to ask all those questions that were ruining the last go-around for these like properties. Right. No, no, that makes sense. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. And you brought something up that I was actually thinking about. I think one of the ways I've, or one of the things I should say, that really helped me uh, conceptualize damage was role-playing games. As hmm. someone who grew up watching, you know, the usual action movies and TV, and then in my teens, early teens, I got into role-playing games and that. And suddenly I had to think about, well, how is this game conceptualizing damage? And how does that relate to, of course, the, the media that I'm watching. Because a lot of this media, I'm, you know, I'm trying to use this role-playing game to simulate this media, these action shows, but it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Because the role-playing game concept of hit points, for example, is not something that really translates well into um, almost anything really in reality. Like, it just is not a very realistic system. It's a very vague, abstract kind of thing. And and it doesn't really make any sense. Like, well, if I hit you in the hand, why do I have to whittle down your whole body's <laughs> worth of hit points to cut your hand off? That kind of thing. It's like, what? That doesn't make any sense. And, of course, then there's the superhero thing, which you already mentioned, where it's like superheroes can have, like, radically different damage abilities to do damage and take damage depending on, uh, you know, then who's writing it basically in the comic books. And how do you possibly simulate that for a role-playing game? And in a lot of ways, one of the ways I judged role-playing games when I was back in my teens and such was how well they dealt with the question of damage in combat. Like injury was one of the main things I focused on because I always felt that that was really what represented how realistic or gritty or whatever uh, a role-playing system was and how well it represented a different genre. Um, to me, I always felt that fantasy should be a little more gritty. and def- But then on the other hand, we had superhero you know, games. And so that's one of the reasons why, since you already mentioned it, DC Heroes, the the Mayfair version, was probably one of the best superhero games ever because it actually found a way to balance all that damage stuff out. Superman totally works in that game and can work and can fight alongside Batman and it works. But almost no other game can do that. Even my beloved Champions was not that good at that um, that kind of power matchup. You really couldn't do Superman properly in Champions, not not do him justice anyway. Um, and definitely not as a, anything resembling uh, a player character, basically. Um, you could do Batman-type characters, but not Superman. Like, the Champions forced everyone to a kind of middle-of-the-road thing. But Champions did do a pretty good job, though, one thing, of the whole idea of... Because um, it that it put damage into what they called stun and body. Stun is the amount of damage you can take before you fall unconscious, and body is actually your physical damage. So attacks tend to do both. And but it was possible to just stun someone. In other words, to focus on that knocking someone out, which totally worked for superhero comics. 
And yeah. so that it, and martial arts fights, it was probably one of the best systems I ever saw for doing like martial arts fights and such, like old kung fu movies. But that's <laughs> that's another that's another issue. But again, as going back to what you were saying though, damage and how you interpret it really does interpret the tone of something. Like the tone of things really is about damage, and maybe that's one of the reasons why even in the DC game, which um, you mentioned again, and I have earlier, the DC role playing game. They have these genre rules, but the genre rules really amount to how damage works. Yeah. Like there's four or five different sets of genre rules, and each of them are, here's how to change how damage works, mostly, for the to match this genre. It's And because that's really, it's amazing how much damage and injury is what determines um, tone, you know, and how, and how, uh, you know, how serious we take something. Um, that's why being very comic booky for a moment the very first episode of batman the animated series mm-hmm. where the one thing they do is they have a they have a shot where batman gets slammed against he's trying to he's got man bat and he's like being flown around by man bat by you know at the end of a cable and man bat slams him into one of the like police dirigibles into the window and you see batman's there faces there and he's got blood on his face yeah and then that we never see that blood again but the point is, you know, after he, but the point is, is we see Batman with blood in the first episode for a moment, and that subconsciously tells us, "Hey, this is serious. These guys are. The, this show has a more serious tone. We should take it in a serious way." And yeah. it's just that little bit of blood that makes the difference between it being a total Saturday morning kids show and it. There's other things too, but it's one of the main things, and us taking this as a serious kind of more action show. Yeah, I, I think the role-playing game thing is a good example because what role-playing games did is when I'm setting up my story and therefore mm-hmm. my setting and my genre and all of that, mm-hmm. I really had to have a good grasp of what I wanted to get at because I had to do that in a rule. It's not like uh, if I'm writing, I can fudge the outcome of any encounter of, of a fight how I want. Mm-hmm. And I have to kind of understand the, um, the the unspoken rules of the genre. In a role-playing game, you have to define those very explicitly because you need the mechanics for it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of why people started paying attention because uh, the idea of hit points actually does work in certain genres because if you look at, say, like 80s action movies, mm-hmm. hit points work really good because Arnie I can... Agree. Arnie can just get slapped around forever and nothing happens. But if he like farts on a bad guy, the guy's head explodes and he dies. Yep. And the idea is that characters in an action film don't suffer injuries. Like even the villain, if, if, if like, you know, in an old school Arnie film, Arnie breaks the bad guy's arm, you hear a snap and he goes, ah, but he's not off balance. He'll still fight the requisite amount he may even throw a punch at that broken arm if you're watching right yeah because it's again it's that hit point thing i'm getting injuries i'm describing the injury but they're not doing anything mm, they have no effect right yeah it, it's the diehard thing like that was everybody thought mclean got injured in your first diehard and it was novel that you know the action hero got hurt but it still didn't matter because, you know, well, he cut up his feet that next scene he's kicking in a plate glass window with. So mm-hmm. 
it's the trappings of it. And again, that's something in a role-playing game. If that was being run, you're still using a hit point system for the first Die Hard movie. The Game True. Master's just describing things a little better than they usually do. But it still amounts to the, the, that same action-y thing. No, no, I'm with you. Okay, that's true. There are some things where it, I guess it, a lot of it does depend on taste. Like yeah. I said, I, I, I tend to prefer my fantasy to be a little more realistic and my superhero stuff to be a little more fantastic. That's just, just but, that, <laughs> but that's my personal taste. Hmm? No, I mean, it, it makes sense. It's, 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 it's that idea. If, if you, if you want to start from real life, mm-hmm. uh, the problem with any kind of injury is, and I've seen a few role-playing games over the years that describe it like this. People don't stay up until they finally run out of points and then fall down. Generally, what happens in a real injury is it either takes you right out of action or it doesn't. There's not really a building effect. Like the, the human body works until you hit one of its off switches kind of thing. Right. Right. Okay. Actually, well, here, I have a suggestion then. So you sent me earlier today, in fact, because this just came out July 6, 2021, 16 lies about violent, <laughs> that, about violence movies have told you. Now, this is a total, this wasn't what inspired this. We'd been planning, we were actually supposed to record this a week ago. Um, but this just happened to come out today. And I thought that maybe we could go through some of the, the 16 lies about violence movies have told you since this totally ties in with what we're talking about. And this gives some specific examples. Okay. So this is a cracked article. We'll link to it in the show notes. Okay. Right. I, I may I may have some more afterwards to uh, to add to describe like how reality and entertainment differs. <laughs> oh no, okay, we can go through that. But I thought it might be a fun thing to actually go through and uh, discuss in some ways. Um, okay. So okay, so and this goes through number. There are sixteen of them. We'll go through them fairly quickly uh, and we'll discuss each. All right, uh, for, starting with number sixteen, punching someone in the head is not a good idea. Even if you do manage to land the punch, the human the he, the head is a small moving target. The human skull is full of hard, sharp things. You're more likely to seriously hurt your hand than your opponent's face. Which the human skull is literally meant to be an armored part of the human body. Yep, it it's it's not a good target. There is a caveat to that mm-hmm. that there are ways to toughen up your hand because actually throwing a punch in general, um, if that if, comes later on in the list, but yes, yeah. yeah it it's 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 difficult there are exercises you can do that toughen up your hands and make it more uh mm-hmm. make it so you can punch without hurting yourself but it makes yeah, your fingers yeah. go in different directions <laughs> yep all right number 15 being a pro fighter doesn't mean you can fight martial artists often find it extremely difficult to adapt an actual fighting situation when you've spent years following strict rules it's pretty hard to let go of all the restraint and just defend yourself yeah that's that's I'm going to say that that's half right. I mean, they do still have the reflexes, right? To, yeah. and there are the, 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 like just drilled in reactions to fight. I mean, they, in theory, they are a better fighter than a normal person. Yeah. What, what I'm going to say, cause this bumps into something that pisses me off about most role-playing games mm-hmm. that they do it wrong. That if you take like, say the martial arts skill, Right. Your character is a superior combatant to someone who just has the brawling skill. Mm-hmm. In real life, essentially, like brawling and alley fighting is a skill. Right. And what, what you get, if you're like a trained fighter, mm-hmm. um, like if you're a boxer or martial artist, you're absolutely right. You're going to have a, a, a level of, of combat proficiency above most people. 
Mm -hmm. But if you meet somebody who's basically just like an experienced thug, right? That person will probably have the advantage because they're they're not going to be predictable. And this ties into something weird. Uh, When you do professional fighting, like say MMA or boxing, Mm -hmm. there are rules and your instincts climatize to those rules. Yes. Yeah. So if you're a boxer, if you knock the guy out, you're not going to go work his ribs like my grandmother always told me to do when I was a kid because Mm -hmm. you've spent your entire life learning how not to do that, to fight that instinct. Right, right. It ties in with a problem they had um, with doing simulated combat for the military. Oh, okay. That they used to do like like the Miles Gear, the simunition, that... When you got hit, like the wax bullets, you see it in like all the movies. Eh? When you get hit with the wax bullets, you're out of the fight. Mm-hmm. But they found what was happening is it was programming people so that when they would get shot, mm-hmm. they would stop fighting. Oh. And they change it so basically you keep going until you know the end of your mission, and then they just add up who's covered in the most uh, the most like goo after the fight. Eh? Right. Right. But it's okay. That, that makes sense. Yeah. It's that same idea that if you're like in like in like a professional fighter, you learn to hold back. Like this is one of the things that made Mike Tyson such a terrifying boxer was that he didn't develop that. <laughs> that that yeah. Mike, Mike Tyson wasn't a boxer; he was a killing machine. Right. And you you would and he he says that himself that he was just like yeah, filled with filled with rage and when he went into the ring he wanted to kill that other person he just the, the the red red cloud took over and that was the end of it yeah yeah and it made him terrifying because he was willing to push things farther than his opponents and that was what gave him a big edge over a lot of his fighters mm-hmm. that again it makes it, sense it, yeah. it it's 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 my grandmother always said what wins a fight of the things that matter is inclination mm-hmm it's the idea that you're the psychopath that's willing to take this farther than the other guy. Yeah, yeah. And and that's, again, if you're a professional fighter, you learn, unless you're like Mike Tyson, you learn to suppress a great deal of that and to channel it. Mm-hmm. And that's why the idea that um, if you meet somebody who doesn't do that, you will likely be at a disadvantage. You've, you've, trained, yeah. you've trained to block like other punches or kicks not to dodge chairs or broken bottles <laughs> yeah so this is why brawlers generally in a real fight a brawler will usually win not always but often it does and it ties to the role-playing game idea that proper brawling mm-hmm. as taught by my dear old grandma the whole focus is causing injury right yeah like that that that's again what what she taught that if it comes down to a fight and it, it's mm-hmm. a, it's a serious fight. Yeah, you're you're trying to break arms. You're trying to like gouge out yeah. eyes. You're 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 hell dope peel the guy's head once. You know, and and, <laughs> and and that's and that's what brawling is. Whereas if you're a martial artist, it's it's about like technique. It's about points. Even something like say boxing, mm. it's not about like straight up murdering a guy. That's why sports have you at that disadvantage boxers don't kick unless you're a kickboxer and even Mm. then you are taught certain maneuvers and counter maneuvers because unlike um movie gladiatorial combat raising a professional fighter is expensive and you don't want them getting mangled maimed or killed because then you lose your investment Mm -hmm. absolutely true all right 
Let's move on to number 14. Lost a hand? That's it for you. Forget about pushing on, maybe with a neat chainsaw <laughs> attached. You'll just bleed out real fast. Even faster if you keep moving around. You're, you'll likely lose consciousness in less than a minute. Yeah, I'm going to say that's, that's true and the consciousness thing. Mm-hmm. For most people, what ends up happening, taking them out of action is pain. Yeah, yeah, pain. That we we are and 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 this is again if you go back to those martial artists and boxers this is a, one of the things that gives them that big advantage is that they're used to pain. Mm, yeah. Most people as as soon as you break their nose they're out of the fight. Yeah. But once they once they're pain they're in pain they they quickly get disoriented they're done. Yep. Like you know this and this is one of the things that media I would argue does terrible is pains. Yeah, like they're just—it's just not very good at the whole injuries equal pain thing, um, which we're gonna a couple of these f- feed into that. So we'll we'll come back to this again. Yeah, number thirteen. Now this one doesn't quite apply, but it kind of does. It's way chloroform won't instantly knock you out. Rendering someone unconscious with chloroform takes two or three minutes. For this to work, your target would need to be extremely cooperative and refrain from fighting <laughs> for a good while. Agreed, because chloroform essentially yeah. blocks oxygen. If if you remember back in the uh, back in like the eighteen hundreds, ether parties were a thing. Folks used to sit around sniffing the stuff for kicks. But again, you know this this is a writing thing, right? This is mm. just simply a writing trope that they that is in stories as a it's a plot device, yeah. right? It's it's one of those things we need for this person to be knocked out. Instantly, we we need for that we need a nonviolent way to simply, and we don't have a phaser pistol to like set on stun. <laughs> we need a nonviolent way for the bad guy to just simply, you know, take this person out in a second. Yeah. And then there's the, the basically the tranquilizer darts are a later one that pop up. Same deal, okay? It's yeah. they're just plot devices, but they're plot devices that because people see so much, they think, oh, they must totally work. No, they don't. They don't work at all. Well, um, again, they work, but not in the way you think they do. And not to the degree, like even even the tranquilizer darts, they take a while to kick in. They don't kick in immediately, um, assuming yeah. they don't kill you. <laughs> yeah, because the other problem, and it Go. and it it's the problem too that if you do the chloroform shtick and you do it realistically, people mm-hmm. will think you're a terrible writer because they're so used to the idea that it puts yes, and that, and that goes. That's why I said this is all this is all about expectation. It's about what is already in your audience's head because again, if you if if it takes like three minutes to knock somebody out, they're going to think it's a gag. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, oh they're going to think you're making fun of the whole chloroform uh, mm. trope. It's like, oh, oh look, they're, they're making a parody of it. No, no, this is this is, this is is realistic. This is kind of how it works. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. All right. Uh, number 12, which you kind of met up. Fists aren't easy. A fight-worthy fist isn't just a bunched-up hand. It takes a lot of learning to get it right. Even professional boxers bungle it, resulting in broken bones. Their own. Yeah, and even once you get it to a point where you can actually punch somebody without, like, breaking a knuckle, your fingers will still come out of joint, but you can put them right back in. Crack. Yeah, it <laughs> sounds like fun. It, it's not, but it can be done. It, 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 it can be done. Oh, that, sounds, that sounds great. Uh, let's see. Number 11. Getting your lights punched out isn't just taking a nap. Losing consciousness even for a few seconds is a serious thing, and you should see a doctor. If someone doesn't wake up soon, they should be rushed to an ER, not just dragged out of the way. Yeah, that's that's another movieism that I can whack you with a chair leg, and you just go, uh, and then it it's interesting in two ways because any time in real life you lose consciousness, it's a serious thing. Yeah, yeah. And number two, in real life, if I whack you in the head with a baseball bat, 
chances are you're not going down right away. I'm going to have to do that a few times, and um, the actual damage that I'm, the structural damage I'm doing to you is is going to do more than uh, just knock your ass out. It's probably going to lower your IQ a couple of points on the way. Uh, we shouldn't be laughing. Anyway, but yeah, and and yet we constantly see, you know, heroes in movies or even even comedies and such just, you know, take take other characters out with a punch or something like that. It's like, no, that's 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 super realistic. But again, the writer needs that villain to be or character whatever to be out, right? They need it's, yeah. it's the chloroform thing. It's you know, it's the tranquilizer thing. This is just it, it, we we need this villain to be out. Yeah, and this is the way of doing it. Like, and we can't do, if we do it realistically, it would just wouldn't work. But it's a plot device. We need we need to keep the story moving. So they have yeah. to be unconscious. That's just the way it is. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, number ten: bulletproof vests aren't really bulletproof. A vest will keep the bullet out of your body, but you might still end up seriously injured. And depending on the vest rating, it will only give you protection against certain kinds of ammo. It it does. Um... But when they say certain kinds, it's basically the the caliber. Like, hmm. if you're wearing what you see, the uh, it, it's called a clamshell. It's a second chance right, yeah. vest that the cops always have under their shirt mm-hmm. with the Velcro straps. That basically is going to slow down a pistol. That that's what that's designed for. It's 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 disguised armor to give you that little bit of an edge. But like a rifle will go right through that stuff. Right. Yeah, well, that makes sense. And also, even if you're even if it stops a pistol. You're still that kinetic energy is still going into you. You are still you're you're going to end up bruised as fuck. It it can because for softer ar- for softer armors like say just a Kevlar vest, yeah, it, it will because it's it's um it's designed to resist penetration, but it's not offering very much blunt force defense. Mm-hmm. Real life combat body armor will stop like a rifle round, but it also weighs like thirty five pounds. <laughs> Well, that's why you have to be trained to wear it, and yeah. uh, that's why. And it's generally only worn by young soldiers, you know, with, who have high levels of fitness mm-hmm. and are capable of wearing it. It's also, also it doesn't breathe very well, so that must be really difficult to wear for long periods of time. Yeah, it depends where you are. How well, hopefully not is. in Western Canada right now, anyway. <laughs> or Ontario at the moment. We're kind of toasty right now. Yes, we are. <laughs> Actually, but this ties into number nine. A nearby explosion won't just push you away. It's true an explosion will throw you around with the force of two goddamn many pounds per square inch (laughs) enough to crush you. And we're not even talking about all that shrapnel. Forget about surviving that. And this is something that I realized many, many years ago and it's always bugged me is the fact that there are so many things that just will simply turn your insides into jello. Like literally, like so many explosions and such. These characters, yeah, they might be alive for the next ten minutes until their body runs out of adrenaline, and then they're just dead. Like they're just gonna fall because that happens with real accidents all the time. Yeah, uh, go go watch some um, accident videos on YouTube or something like that. You'll see lots of examples of people getting up from stuff from like seemingly surviving, you know, incredible things. But it's like no, they're 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 gonna be dead in a few minutes. It's just a delayed reaction, and because. It's amazing how much um, an impact or that what it will actually do to your insides, even if it doesn't break any bones. Like yeah. We are still fleshy things. That that kinetic energy is doing damage to your guts, and you can't just walk that off. You your guts can be <laughs> turned into spam pretty easy. Yeah, explosions are funny things because there's different kinds. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, basically, uh, an explosion like you'd see in a movie does damage with heat, shrapnel, and concussive force. Mm-hmm. You can, and, and they're funny things because the the concussion, the shock wave, mm-hmm. that that force is essentially a wall of compressed air that right. hits you. That the explosion blows out. Funny mm-hmm. things happen because I saw footage. Of it was a cop standing next to it was in Britain. It was during the uh, during the troubles, right? Yeah, that a bomb in a garbage can blew up like right next to this cop, only a few meters away. Right, right. And it was it was concussion. They didn't have uh, they didn't have a lot of shrapnel in it, but the blast wave hit a pole that was between the cop and the explosion, mm-hmm. and it split the shock wave because you know um, that's what happens when when air when wind hits an obstacle like that it'll split around it and then reform on the other side and this guy was just at the exact spot that that blast reformed and it did so fast because that shockwave was moving damn quickly yeah the vacuum that was created of it reforming just on the other side he was in that sweet spot it like ripped his clothing off but he was relatively fine right don't bet your life on that no, I mean it, you can end up. I actually saw one last week. Actually, I, I happened to see one, one on Reddit that was a suicide bomber, actually. Mm-hmm. And so the it's from the uh, dash cam one of the military vehicles, and so they're going along, and there's that guy at the side of the road watching the military vehicles go, and suddenly there's this explosion, and you're like, "What's going on?" In fact, it's hard to tell, and I had to read the notes to go along with the video to even truly understand what I just watched. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, yeah, the guy let off the suicide bomb on his chest, but I guess whoever did it, under whatever reason, I maybe they put, or more effect, they put a metal plate behind it or something, so the suicide blast just went out. <laughs> it didn't actually, so it kind of threw him back, mm-hmm. and it went out, didn't do any real damage to the vehicles, and then you just saw the guy get up and like, whoa, what? And start walking around, and most people are like, yeah, that guy's probably going to be dead in 10 minutes. But uh, but you never know, actually. He might not be. So you know, explosions, as you said, are really weird things. Sometimes yeah. they will kill people and sometimes they don't. Yeah, because that shock wave mm-hmm. from the explosion, sometimes it, what it'll do is it can, like, soup your organs without doing, like, a lot of dermal damage. Yeah, yeah. So the blast wave basically reverberates through your body and yeah. it shakes up all your guts and they fall apart and you die yeah. anyway. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, number eight. Oh, this is a fun one. I do like this one. You can't have a conversation during a gunfight. <laughs> Gunshots are louder than jackhammers. So forget about wisecracking at your opponents, let alone whispering to your partners while bullets are flying. You'll be pretty much deaf for a while. So, so as someone who has fired guns in in certain roles in your life don what do you say to this <laughs> it's half true okay uh because it kind of depends where inside if you're like in an enclosed area and you use a firearm right oh you, you're they're loud you're not going to hear nothing outside mm-hmm. where it's not like reverberating in that uh right. you might not and in a lot of cases they're they're they're, they're firearms are a lot louder than movies make them out to be Mm-hmm. it's like the idea of a silencer a silencer doesn't silence anything it just makes it not sound like a gun right but you can you can do that because like say for the military when you do your command training they teach you how to yell really loud and, <laughs> right and it's for this because if the infantry is doing a section attack they don't have radios they're spread out over like say you know 30 meters 
And their commanders have to be able to yell across the, the frontage of that formation to get right. people orders. So right. you can well, you, okay. you can do it. They also teach you the trick that what'll end up happening in like a case like that, or if you're on the range and stuff, what'll happen is the, the commander will give an order and then everybody repeats it. Mm-hmm. So that way they know yeah. it and the, the guys way on the end hear it. Right, that makes sense. You, you sometimes see that in a movie where, like, the commander will be, you know, to your front, 50 meters, and you'll hear everybody yelling, 50 meters, 50 meters, which is not quite right either. But there are ways around that. Like, you mm-hmm. can you can yell over, and it depends on what you're firing, you can yell over gunfire, but it's not nearly as easy as movies make it out to be. Actually, and this leads to an interesting question then. Um, so when live fire exercises are being done um you're wearing ear protection right yes you 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 need to be but how do you hear each other then if people are yelling orders if you're wearing ear protection yell louder (laughs) okay then (laughs) okay the nice part if you're in a vehicle Mm -hmm. like a lot of the headsets in the vehicle actually have directional mics on them Right. Okay. Makes sense. And an intercom. Cause mm-hmm. if you're, if you're in a tank, people, this kind of goes with this mm-hmm. being inside a tank. When that thing is running, you can't hear a thing. You can't hear the guy next to you. Right. Yeah. They have inter. That's why you'll see the guys in the turret with the headphones. On. They have intercoms. That's the only way you can talk right. to each other inside one of them damn things. Right. How about when the tanks guns are actually firing? <laughs> yeah. Isn't that isn't the tank basically one giant deafening boombox at that point? Yep. Okay. Okay. There, there, there's a funny thing uh, for the Canadian military because Canadian military black hat means you're an armored guy. If you go to the medics, the medics always do like their their uh, I forget the name, but they do mm-hmm. their summation where they they have pre-existing conditions. You're you're kind of like your Jiffy Quick interview. Right. Right. And and. They'll do stuff like, uh, they'll ask you, uh, do you have any kind of like hearing trouble? If they see a black hat, they just write hearing trouble in. <laughs> Seriously, they do. Right. That's, that's well, sad and funny at the same time. And, and it, and it, it's true. Cause that's, that's the other thing again, when you watch a movie, uh, things are, are, are maximalized mm-hmm. for audience comprehension. And that's why sounds are toned down. It's it's the same reason I can watch a movie in Japanese and follow it, but I have difficulty speaking because people in movies don't talk like people in real life. They're much more enunciated. They're much clearer mm-hmm. because yeah. the, it's it's for understandability. Yep, yep. Oh no, I I get it. I I uh, was just watching a movie in uh, Mandarin last night with my wife, and I was shocked by actually. I sometimes will watch dramas with her and i can't usually follow what they're saying in dramas just little pieces here and there mm-hmm. but i was watching this movie in mandarin and i could I, I, let me i don't understand everything they're saying but i can hear everything they're saying i can hear mm-hmm. all the individual words that they're saying because they're enunciating so clearly because they're pronouncing you know they're pronouncing things so clearly that i could that i could follow actually quite a good percentage of what they were actually saying which actually surprised me because I'm used to watching dramas where my wife complains about that, that they often most <laughs> in, in Asian dramas, again, this is something that you have to actually speak the language to actually understand. They're often kind of slurring a little bit, but they do that in Western dramas, probably more than we realize too, yeah. but they don't speak that clearly. Um, again, it's a style thing. You know, it's a, it, it's a presentation, but 
going back to what you're just what you're saying yeah so you know in movies and such they are designed for maximum unless it's uh oh what's that guy's name um he wrote he did said tenant last year christopher nolan Mm-hmm. Christopher Nolan purposely, actually, I believe I saw where he talks about that. He purposely makes the dialogue hard to hear at times and understand. Yeah. He's actually trying to make you uncomfortable or not quite understand, not be able to hear exactly what's being said or what's going on. He's doing that, which drives some people freaking nuts. He also, the other guy thing he tricky does is he purposely will let things go out of focus mm-hmm. on the camera. Which also drives a lot of people nuts. But, but other people <laughs> think he's an artistic genius. So take right. it <laughs> He could be an artistic genius or he could be a bad filmmaker. Anyway, um, the key point is is that, yeah, so you're right. Usually movies are designed to be you're here, including, of course, gunshots, which don't – in movies, which don't sound like actual gunshots. That's the other thing that always yeah. bugs me, that a real gunshot and a movie gunshot are two entirely different things, which is a perfect example of what the audience is used to. Yep. Yeah, there, there's, there's all kinds of um... – of crazy things you you notice and this is why like if you join like the military or join the police or something mm-hmm. a lot of times it ruins action movies because you'll be watching like uh the hero take out his weapon and do something you're like that is totally wrong and you're not gonna hit a damn thing doing that mm-hmm. but you know for the movie it works well and, uh, and it works mm-hmm. and it's that idea that um your audience gets programmed to that and mm-hmm. if you do something properly, a lot of times in a movie, the audience thinks you're you're a terrible writer. Yeah, yeah you're, you're a terrible writer, a terrible filmmaker. Because that's not how it is. No, that really is how it is. But that's not what their idea of it is. So it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of messed up. All right, moving on. So number seven. You can't be easily sedated. This We already mentioned this. Too little sedation and nothing will happen too much and you will kill your target. And even if you get the right dose just right, the effect is never immediate. Yeah. Yep. Very, very true. Because yeah. um, pe- people don't realize that anesthetics are actually just watered down poison. Yeah. Pretty much. Uh, I feel really sorry for the uh, the father and Detective Conan. Um <laughs> Who, I who for who over a thousand up to a thousand plus episodes. The joke is that, which is why Don's laughing, is because that's a it's a show where there's a we'll just go with this. There's a little kid detective, okay, and there's a there's an adult detective, but the adult detective is an idiot. So what's happening is, is the little kid detective is using a knockout dart each episode to knock the the, the adult detective out, and then everyone and then. And then mimics the adult detective's voice to actually solve the case. That's actually what's happening. So you can see it as case closed on Netflix, at least in Canada anyway. And I think maybe the states they have some, they have some episodes. You can see it if you want to. It's extremely well done, but that's what that's the shtick. And so the poor adult detective gets pretty much to date almost every episode. And it's to the point where everyone anyway. It's 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 very entertaining. But the key point is is that yeah he'd be long dead. He would have died by the second or third episode at, le- at least. And again, I guess I guess he knows who he's always shooting, right? So it's always the exact right amount. Yeah, or you can go the other way if you ever uh, saw the Venture Brothers with the sea captain. How does that work? Uh, the the sea captain got knocked out by uh, by the uh, the henchman of the monarch because they use tranquilizer darts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that yeah. he got addicted to the darts. 
<laughs> he he used to charge them just so they'd like knock him out because he was like he was addicted to the uh, to the drugs and the, the uh, knockout darts. That makes a twisted amount of sense. Yep. Okay. Okay. Sure. All right. So uh, number six, removing a bullet only makes things worse. Cutting a bullet out makes for dramatic scenes, but awful first aid. If the bullet didn't kill your friend, you digging it out just might. What with all the extra damage you're causing. Yeah. There is, there's the other thing that if you've ever done first aid, if you've get like something stuck in you, hmm. it's the same idea. A bullet will work the same way, actually. They hmm. tell you don't take it out because that thing is acting like a cork. <laughs> <laughs> right. That makes sense, actually. Yeah, that's true. It's blocking the, uh, it, you know, it's keeping things together. So don't take it out. Yeah, that's it's really necessary. Yeah, especially if it's currently like uh, blocking an artery, because as soon as you pull out whatever, you'll bleed out. Right, yeah. It's like an arrow, right? If you get stuck with an arrow, for God's sake, don't pull the damn thing out. Oh, hell no. And and, and again, it's you'll, do, you'll likely do more damage, unless you're a surgeon. And mm. yeah, it's, it's plugging you. Leave if it, it's a lesson I've taught on like many first aid kind of courses and that. Mm-hmm is if you get hurt or exposed mm. to that and, and you're not dead yet, don't screw around. The, count your blessings. Deal with the, Don't make it worse. <laughs> yeah, whatever you do, just don't make things worse, right? Because yeah. that's first aid they teach you that, that, yeah, you bandage around the object that's stuck in the person. Yep, don't try to take it out. Yeah, ever. No, bad idea. Ever. Yeah, I always thought with an arrow though, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to cut the arrow though as close to the wound as possible because you it's you're you're more likely to do more tearing or damage if this thing is sticking out of you. Uh, properly, if you don't have to, you don't. Okay. What the real problem is if I got like an arrow sticking out of me. Yeah. If something thwacks that arrow, like if you guys are carrying me and you move it around. Yeah, yeah. It can do more damage. It can get dug in and. If you if you pull it, it'll break the seal between all my uh, gooey bits inside, and I'll start bleeding again. Right, right. Uh, especially if it's cauterizing around it. Mm-hmm. The problem is cutting it can can do the same thing. Cutting it can can aggravate the injury. Right. So if you don't have to, you don't. You leave everything exactly how it was, and you right. bandage around it, and you go to the dock. Right. No, that makes sense. Actually, here's a question. Aren't bullets super hot? Like, don't they at least partly cauterize as they go through? They do. It kind of depends on a lot of stuff. Mm. Like it, like range, the kind of bullet. Uh, right. That was the thing with the 9mm pistol rounds when they started using them back in like the, uh, the 80s. Mm-hmm. They found that at close range, they were traveling so fast that they cauterized a lot of the injury. And they just went right through. Yeah. it It's something that's not on the list, but it, it kind of bears discussing is mm-hmm. different types of damage do different things. Right. But you very seldom see that reflected in any kind of entertainment. Hmm. Uh, the, the, the best example I can think of is uh, Avatar, The Last Airbender, the TV show. Okay. Where uh, Zuko's father, the emperor, burned half his face and he has a scar. Well... How? Because if you look at any of their their attacks, elemental attacks, mm-hmm. they all basically just do bludgeoning damage. Even when a guy hits you with a fire attack, nobody's getting burned. You're getting knocked around. That's true. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't thought about that. You're right. 
and and it's the idea that people don't realize in real life um something like a machete mm-hmm. does a lot more structural damage than a bullet bullets just put tiny little holes in you right yeah but what makes bullets so deadly is the idea that they put that tiny little hole all the way through you mm-hmm. so there's a chance of hitting something really important while they're doing that yes and also they're doing it at range Oh, yeah, that's a big one. But for the actual damage itself, this is why in real life, shooting mm-hmm. the lock off of the door is a really stupid idea because you're not going to do enough structural damage to take right. the lock out. You're basically just going to break it. Now I'm not going to be able to pick it. <laughs> right. Because you bent the stupid doorknob on me. Right. Yeah. Okay. Makes and, sense. And that's the same thing like like a machete does a lot of damage, especially if I hit you with one. I'm ripping a really big hole in you. But the thing is... Because it's less force, I might not be able to get in. So, like, if I hit you in the torso, I might not be able to cut through your ribs to get to your organs. But I'm putting, mm. like, a foot-long gash all the way to the bone in, in, in your chest. Yeah, yeah, it's going to do a little damage. It's going to be a little painful. Oh, yeah, the, the shock will probably kill you. And it's it gets worse going back to uh, the, uh, the Fire Nation attacks. Mm-hmm. that when you're dealing with science fiction and fantasy and you're dealing with weird weapons, this is one thing that bothered me about a lot of role-playing games. They do different things. Like if we could weaponize a laser and a high particle beam, mm-hmm. they don't do damage the way a bullet does. They have totally different effects. They would do different things, but you very seldom see that reflected in any kind of pop culture. True, true. Yeah. Lasers just go through. They're more, almost more of a cutting tool than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Just that stream of them cutting, which you actually, in Japanese stuff, you will often see. That's one thing I found. The Japanese actually being the um, obsessives that they can be at times. <laughs> when it comes to damage, the Japanese stuff are often much more about portraying different kinds of damage realistically than American stuff ever is. With one exception, I would say. Oh, okay. And I think it ties, and the exception I would say is Star Trek. Okay. And I think it's because uh, when when they did Star Trek, the technology of the setting is a big part of the story. Mm-hmm. And I think when the Japanese do their science fiction, they like to think it all through. Right. And that's why you'll see that. They'll say, well, if this guy has like an energy whip, what makes it different from this plasma cannon? And they'll take the time to differentiate. Right. Yeah, it makes sense. Because that was a big thing, like, say, Star Trek, the phasers were supposed to be not just weapons, but multi-purpose tools. And that's why they had different settings. And in the original series, even, you saw them that I could set them on the lowest setting and knock you out. Mm -hmm. I could set them for medium and use them to heat up rocks to use, like, a campfire so we don't freeze to death because the transporter's out. Right, yeah. Or on highest setting, it just makes you disappear because it separates all your molecules. Yeah, yeah, very handy. And that was one of the things that they conceptual. That's why they're phasers and not lasers. And the very first pilot that didn't technically air, they were lasers. But mm-hmm. they wanted that versatility. It's because they were paying attention. They wanted the tech to be plausible. They were trying to take science fiction out of kind of the old West and space ghetto, ironically, which is how they right. sold it. Yeah. And, I know. And, and give it something with a little more edge and, and considering the material a little more grounded. And that's why they same thing. Uh, the idea of dilithium, mm-hmm. they made it up. It was going to be like lithium capacitors, but they're 
their chemical uh, advisors. Yeah, they said, well, that's not what lithium. It, it wouldn't create that power. We know that. We'll call it dilithium. It's some totally separate thing that you can say generates that kind of output. Well, knowing the history of Star Trek, at some point, you know, a decade or so from now, they'll discover actual dilithium. It's real. It's dilithium, and it really does work that way. <laughs> what is that? Element one fifteen. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Uh, the, mm-hmm. Remember the crystals, right? They're not actually an element yeah. exactly. Dilithium crystals are spoiled. And remember, dilithium crystals aren't generating the power, if I recall right. They're actually helping to modulate the power. Because uh, don't Star Trek, don't Star Trek uh, engines run off uh, antimatter? Yeah, they do. I think. I think. Yeah, I think you might be right. That well, the dilithium either starts the um, process or mitigate it. Because remember, they burn out. You have to replace them. That you you do use them up. No, number five, knockout gas is likely to kill you. <laughs> Russian authorities found out in 20, 2002 how finicky knockout gas can be when they <laughs> pumped a chemical agent into a theater to control a hostage situation. The result was over 100 dead hostages. Oops. <laughs> yeah, and that goes what, what, with uh, what we were saying before. The problem is mm-hmm. any kind of like uh, anesthetic is actually watered down poison. And if it's like a knockout gas that's um, essentially causing asphyxia or epoxia, anything that's blocking your body's processing of oxygen is probably not a good thing. True. And if you get some smokers, some seniors in there, other people, or children, young children, who can't take a dosage of the stuff, they're dead. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Or if they're just allergic to it. Oh, yeah. There's, yeah, there's always going to be a few of those. All right. Number four, uh, kicks are no good. Kicking someone is slow, cumbersome, and leaves you exposed to a counterattack to your crotch. The effectiveness <laughs> of kicking for self-defense is debated even in the martial arts community. True. Yeah, I, I'm going to say generally, because there are times if, if you're fast or skilled enough, you can get the drop on somebody. Mm-hmm. So they're not totally, and like my grandmother said, once they're down, work the ribs, so that way they don't get back up. I think when they say kicks are no good, they're referring to playing Bruce Lee, right? They're referring to, yeah. you know, doing the high kicks, or, you know, you think you're going to be the karate kid or something. No, if, you, if you're if you not a kickboxer, don't do it. It's not going to go well. Yeah, because you can, because again, it's that idea, if you're doing it in like a, a tournament, mm-hmm. you're trained to a certain degree to expect that. Mm-hmm. And you'll see that with the kickboxers, that they'll block the kicks. The kicks are kind of like jabs in boxing. They're just sort of there to piss you off and confuse you a little bit. Mm-hmm. But you can do it. Um, I, I don't know if we talked about this before, but when Dokken Stanchi went to that one uh, grape fest here in Windsor. No, we didn't talk about that. Oh, they, 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 they got drunk because mm-hmm. the grape, grape fest is it, it's a wine festival. And they were the two of them were leaving and they got mugged by three guys. Right. And they, the guy said, give me your wallet. And the two of them, I, apparently, because we picked them up after it was all said and done. Stanchu phoned the rest of us to pick them up. So this is how we, we got the story. Right. The comment that they had was, we're too late. We spent all your money. One guy kicked Doke and knocked him over. Right. Because Stanchu said he watched this guy. Now, they were drunk. So, again, they were slow. Because Stanchu's comment was, I watched Doke get kicked in the face and drop, and I started laughing, thinking, glad I'm not fighting that guy, and he turned around to get a foot in the face, eh? Right. 
At which point he then just grabbed the guy and slapped him around till he passed out. Because <laughs> if you remember, Stanchi was a giant mountain of a man. Right. Yeah, that, well, that's so, the problem, right? Kicks are great. But in which case, they have the control of you now. Yep. And then that was the time that Doke peeled the guy's head because the guy jumped on him while Doke was down. Right. And Doke's comment was, um, he told us later, he said, he was a little stunned and he didn't know what to do. And he saw this guy and he thought, I got to do something. He just reached up and he grabbed the guy's face, but he got his thumbs into his cheeks and then he pulled. Right. And split the guy from like nose to chin. Oh my God. Because one of the funniest things I ever saw, we got the call. It was, I think, me, Joe, and other Don, I think, were the guys that got them. Because we went to statues, and we're in the basement, and Doke is in the recliner in the basement, and he is covered in blood. By the way, I should note that this was 30, maybe 35 years ago, Don's talking about. Okay? Yeah, it was about, So, it was so by the way, I'm pretty sure the statute of limitations is over on this one. <laughs> oh, we, we, we don't know who this, who this guy was. And he started it, so it's self-defense. Right, okay just disgusting but but yeah doke wakes up he is covered in blood Mm -hmm. and i remember it because he wakes up he looks around he looks at us and he points he goes is this mine and we went no and he shrugs his shoulders went back to sleep (laughs) okay somewhere out there somewhere out there there's a guy who looks like a going to guy with stitches all down the middle of his face we went, we went, uh, we were around, uh, he was a construction worker because we did see, we, well, we saw a guy that had his face stitched up where like, it can't have happened to two people in the last week. That's gotta be the guy. <laughs> really? So you actually saw him? Wow. Yeah. We think it was. Okay. I don't know how it would cause your face to split like that would be so weird, but okay. It's uh, just because Doke just pulled that hard. He just yanked. Because remember, again, Doke is a big muscle thug back then too, eh? Right. And and going back to what we were saying earlier, right? He's reacting under the influence of alcohol and he's just doing whatever he needs to survive. He's he's in I don't want to die mode. So he's not holding back. So he's not. He's, no. He's not. I mean, the guy's lucky he didn't get his eyes gouged out at that point instead of his yeah. cheeks. And, and like I said, Doke is a skilled brawler. So... That idea, it's it's not about sparring. His whole thing is, I'm going to hurt you as bad as I can to make you stop getting in my face kind of thing. Right, yeah. And nobody's afraid to get their hand peeled. That's a good, that's a great attack. I love that so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's pretty impressive. All right, almost done the set. All right, number three. Mm-hmm. Uh, not being knocked out doesn't mean you didn't get a concussion. In about 90% of concussions, there is no loss of consciousness. You can be awake and go out and still have your brain shaken like jello, requiring medical attention. Yep. That'll be most Very boxers, true. in fact. Yeah, it's it's true, and sometimes weird things happen because I have, um, mm-hmm. I can't say I have memories of, but I have lack of memories of, um, again, when we were young and there was hijinks, uh-huh. getting, getting thrown from a guy's car. And the next thing I remember is having a hamburger at Wendy's, which was about a half hour walk away. Wow. Okay. And I don't know what happened in, but I don't know how I got to Wendy's. So I have a funny feeling I bounced and nobody noticed that, you know, I got, got myself a bit of a concussion there. Were you thrown from the car by people who didn't like you? I mean, or was this, this, this oh, anyway, well, I bet we better he's, not go into that. He um, was trying to get us off his car. <laughs> if that says anything there are many there are so many questions but we're not going to go into that in the show all right so um all right number two this is an interesting one because you see it all the time 
Don't cut yeah. your palm to draw blood for crying out loud. The hand is the go-to spot to get blood in movies, especially horror movies or vampire movies, even though it's the, yeah. almost the last place where you'd want a wound. That gash will reopen every time you do anything, and it will likely require a doctor to see it, unless you can, you know, regenerate, of course. You know, in which case, <laughs> which case okay, you're fine because you're a, you're a freaking vampire. But very mm-hmm. true. Why do people – I mean, here's a weird question. If you wanted to, I don't know, for whatever reason, drop some blood into a vial or that – where would you actually cut? Like I was thinking about this the other day. It's like not because I wanted to, or not not because I'm feeding you know uh, you know uh, satanic ceremony or something, but because I was just thinking about this. Like you wouldn't want to cut the hand. You definitely are not going to cut the wrist. That'll that'll get you dead. Like where would you mm-hmm. actually cut on the human body if you wanted to make a you know for some vampire movie or something or you know whatever they want someone wanted to make a blood sacrifice? What would be the best spot? Forearm. So forearm would be the right way to go. Okay, if you if you had to, because again, it's it's probably not a, a good idea to to do that in general. <laughs> yes, of course it is. Of course not. But I mean, I, I'm thinking in some situation where, for whatever reason, you have to give a really quick blood sample, and it couldn't be just like something you get from your finger, and you need a decent amount. You need a couple cc's at least of blood really quickly out there, and for some whatever fantasy reason or whatever. Um, I guess forearm because the the problem is yeah you're risking cutting into the main veins though I mean maybe or do you mean the top of the forearm? Uh, you probably go because remember closer to the elbow because remember that's where they they take blood. And, oh yeah, and, that's and true. That. that is they do that. Yeah, that's true. Okay, good point. Yeah. And it's it's because there's some some major blood vessels there. Um, the problem with cutting your wrist, like I'm I'm not gonna gonna repeat the joke because I don't want to give anybody ideas. Yeah. But there's a way to cut your wrist if you go the wrong direction. Are you talking about it the train does, tracks joke? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This this way for effect, that way for attention. Yeah. 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 That if you cut your wrist the wrong way, it'll just seal back up. Yeah, that's true. That's and true. And it, it it's the same thing because your arms are actually periphery. Your body doesn't put a lot of importance on your arms when it comes to survival. Yeah. So true. the the ma- the major blood vessels in your arms when you get past like the forearm aren't as major as some. Now the problem when you get near the shoulders, there's a couple of big big uh blood vessels there that if you cut those you're you're bleeding out in seconds. Mm. Uh cuz there's another thing with the hand that makes it a bad idea is your hand touches things. Mm. Imagine if you cut the hand you wipe with. Like that's going to get infected. It's getting infected really easy. And yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, why would you also... Let's think about this. The hand is where a fuck ton of nerves are. Like, yep. it's literally going to be more painful to do it that way. Yep. There are more nerve endings <laughs> there because the whole point of the hand is you're supposed to... Your fingers have astounding amounts of nerves in that going through because you're supposed to be perce- perceiving things by touch. It's also a sensory organ. Would you... Would you if you want to give a blood sample, would you cut your dick? Like, let's think about this for a moment. Or your tongue or... Or other and any others or bottom of your foot, like sensitive parts of your body? No, of course not. So why are you doing it to your hand? And remember, when you cut the palm, hmm. there's not a lot of uh, major blood vessels there because there are no muscles in the hand. So you're gonna have to cut real deep. Yep, to get lots of blood there. So and it, you're gonna wipe with it and get infected. Oh, so so stupid. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> Although it does depend on which hand you're using, especially if you're in the Middle East. You know, the one the one hand's for eating, the one hand's for wiping. But it, you know, whatever. Well, there's actually a lot of places like that. That's yeah, why, that's not uh, the least. Yeah, Asia in general, actually. Yeah, and that, that's why, like, uh, 
little hint to the listeners. If you're giving or receiving something to somebody, you always use your right hand. Yes. And that's, that's one of the reasons why. Yeah, exactly. The left hand is for wiping. Yeah, if someone basically. offers you their left hand, they're either left-handed or they're insulting you. Uh, there's there's yeah. the thing. Um, speaking <laughs> of handiness, let's get to number one. You aren't likely to actually land many punches. When you're about to attack, your body automatically goes through preparatory motions that telegraph to your rival what you're about to do, if they're perceptive enough. You have to be very lucky to throw a punch they don't see coming. Uh, another another partly true one. Okay. Details. Because uh, what they're talking about telegraphing. Because again, um, especially say a punch, you throw a punch from the hip. Mm-hmm. You don't throw a punch... You don't throw a punch from like the the shoulder. That's right. that's a jab. Like I said, that's just to irritate people. Right. So somebody with a little bit of skill or experience, because it'll become an instinct, will see it coming and and they'll they'll mount a defense. Right. But if it's somebody whose skill level is significantly lower than yours, mm-hmm. no, you'll hit. I I had a friend who was like a semi pro boxer. Hmm. And he got into a fight downtown with like a drunk idiot. And and this was like a downtown drunk idiot. He was just like a kid beaking off. He he wasn't, right. you know, actually a fighter or anything. And and meanwhile, my, my, my friend was like a semi-pro boxer. And this guy's like, I'm going to kick your ass. And I'm going to kick it again. He's like, you don't want to do that, man. Well, are you afraid to fight? No, I'm just telling you, you don't want to do it. And the guy's like, well, yeah, we'll go right now. Let's do this thing. And he's like, are you really sure? Uh-huh. <laughs> You really want to do this? Uh, one, one shot, caught him in the face, knocked him right out. <laughs> Going back to our knockout thing, that's probably a really bad thing. Yeah, okay. Yeah, well, he was, he, he was already tipsy. See, that's the thing. Um, hmm. When you get to any kind of injury, what, what entertainment never gets is that there's effects. Mm-hmm. Like it does stuff. It's not that hit point thing that I'm just wearing you down. Right. So if you punch somebody in the face, there are ways to do it. And there are spots where in the face where it's really good to punch somebody. Mm-hmm. But you kind of have to know what they're doing. Like the jaw isn't, if you hit it right, there's a nerve that goes along it. I can't remember the name of it. Right. And if you hit it right, you can actually knock somebody out just hitting them in the jaw. Oh, wow. Really? Okay. But the jaw is a good solid target. So you're going to hurt your hand. Right, yeah. And again, it's a skilled shot. It's it's like like a boxer can do it because that's one of the reasons they aim for that. That's why if you ever watch boxers, mm-hmm. they keep one hand over their like their mouth. It's to protect their chin so they don't get that ah, okay. sucker punch uppercut. Right, that makes sense. Um, it's the same thing. The face, the eyes are a good target. Mm-hmm. But if you punch at them it doesn't it it's harder to hit and again there's a lot of like really hard bone around that well they're kind of protected for a reason yeah uh the the old trick people say where you do the flat palm to the nose and you push it near their brain and they die no they don't yeah i know that, that, but but that i remember that from the 80s that was a big 80s thing you know, you saw that yeah. in movies everywhere it's like yeah it's the assassin strike where they come up behind the guy and they use the, they push up the cartilage into their brain and they fall over dead yeah, no, it, it doesn't. Because to do that, you'd have to push that cartilage to the brain pan. Mm-hmm. And the brain pan is like an inch thick. And it's your your skull is like granite. Right, yeah, it is. Yeah. It, so you don't do it. But that, and the problem with doing that open palm thing, if you do it wrong, you break your wrist. Mm-hmm. But if you do hit the nose like that, if you hit the nose upward, what it does is dislocates the cartilage and then their eyes swell up and they can't see you. <laughs> oh, that's pretty handy. 
But that's again one of the things you don't generally see because you don't see it's not the cinematic. Effects. Oh, it, it could be. I, I've seen it done, but you don't generally see the effects of getting of getting hit. It's it's that idea you're up or you're down or you're you're staggering, you know, telling Mick to cut you mm-hmm. so you can get back in. But you're not you're not like debilitated in any way. Whereas in real life the effects of getting hurt actually start lowering your combat effectiveness. Pretty quickly, I would think. It depends on a lot. Um, yeah, like, the, I've known people, the old kick to the nuts, I've known people it doesn't work on. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one guy I used to say he was a Neolithic. <laughs> okay. Because he, he, he had like a dinosaur nervous system. You you could kick him in the crotch and he'd feel it like ten minutes later. Right. But in those adjoining ten minutes, he's messing you up really bad, so it's it's not an effective attack. Right, right, right. But there's 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 stuff like I've if somebody comes up behind you, you stamp mm-hmm. on the top of their foot. Right. Cause that hurts like hell. Yeah. And if you if you distend those tendons, now they can't run after you and you've thrown them off balance. Yeah, that's true. Um tricks people don't think of is you always see like where the bad guy grabs the hero by the throat and the hero grabs him by the wrist and tries pulling him off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not a good idea. In a situation like that, what works really well is Grab their little finger right by the knuckle and bend it backwards till it snaps. Yeah, just snap the little finger, right. Yeah, because there's no strength. And like we were saying before, pain takes people out of action fairly quick. Mm. And a few broken fingers hurts like hell. It'll at least make them reconsider what they're doing. (laughs) Although if they're doing the neck from behind properly, the part that's actually in front of your neck is actually like the joint of their elbow, right? So their hand is actually out of the way. Uh, if they're strangling, if, if they're doing a blind choke, no. Oh, okay. The, what you see in movies and pro wrestling with like their elbow right in front of their neck. Yeah, yeah. That's fake. If you know, if you notice what's really happening okay. in a case like, in a case like that, if you watch all the sensitive bits of their throat are nestled in the crux of their arm. They're not actually putting pressure on it. Oh, so that's why they're doing it that way on purpose. So that, so it's yeah. actually a safe way to do what looks like a choke. Yeah, there's there's the proper way of doing. I'm not going to explain it on the air. You know, like, <laughs> you, I don't want to give people not ideas. It on the air. Okay, well, yeah, yeah. Because the proper way to do it, essentially, you're focusing all of your energy to cut off the flow of blood to the brain. Right, makes sense. And that puts you out in a little bit. Um, don't do it for kicks because sometimes when you do that, it doesn't start back up again. Yeah, it's a bit of a problem. Because if, if I cut off the flow of blood, people don't realize blood vessels can collapse. Mm. So if I'm temporarily cutting off your aorta and your throat and it collapses, that it, might not be a temporary shut off. <laughs> it might not reinflate. Yeah. 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 And, and, but again, and it's that thing, people think that that's how it works and it really doesn't. But it's because, again, you see it in movies. If yeah. you did it the proper way, uh, people would find it weird. What the hell is that guy doing? That doesn't. 
Well, the other thing that always gets me, I don't know why this has always bugged me since we're talking about, you know, jokes from behind, um, is the whole thing where the guy comes up behind the main character or whatever, usually often female, but sometimes male. Um, they come up, they put their arm around them, and then that character does the thing where they start attacking them with their elbow, you know, the old elbow to the ribs and that. Is that the correct response? Uh, or does that actually work? It can work. Again, it's that idea. It depends how skilled you are with your elbows. Right. If, if somebody's got you like that, what my dear old grandma used to say is, remember, both their hands are busy and yours aren't. So she used to suggest things like grab an ear and pull till it comes off or poke their eyes. Right, right. Oh, that Actually, she used, to yeah. say, she used to say, scoop your eyes with their fingers because that <laughs> hurts more. Yeah, I'm and, surprised and, we don't see a lot more eye gouging. <laughs> so, but again, yeah. we can't do that in movies, right? It doesn't work so well. Yeah, and and because again, it's it's that idea. For a long time, you couldn't really do it convincingly in a movie. Mm-hmm. And so a lot I was of just times- watching. Let me just uh, a quick anecdote. Quick. Um, so I was watching a show called Fight Dragon, which I mentioned to you before. It's oh. kind of like Bruce Lee the series. It was from Japan in the nineteen seventies. And there's a shot where the the main character Dragon, Bruce Lee, whatever. Uh, basically, he gouges a guy's eyes out. Okay, so he's like, he does, a quick, he does a quick thing with the thumbs, and so the guy eyes, guy goes back, ah, yo, screaming, he's got the blood all around the eyes and everything <laughs> like that. And a moment later when they're fighting, you can see that the guy is, uh, has opened his eyes again, and it's just the blood around the eyes, but he's still got, his eyes are fine, right? Mm-hmm. They're trying to hide that. He's still supposed to be blind at this point, but you can actually see, because you can't really do it convincingly. It doesn't work that well. Yeah. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. I just, I just thought of that. I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, it is. Um, it's it's also one of those weird things that eyes are weird. Mm. Like if I gouge out your eyes mm-hmm. and, and I do it properly, there might not be that much blood because they'll just pop out. That's true. Yeah, I have to tear I have to tear the muscles to to get them out or distend them because your eyes are kind of spongy. Right. They're actually made out of like it's it's like natural Kevlar, so right, yeah. they don't. If I put pressure on them, it might hurt, and I'm probably going to give you glaucoma and detach a retina. But they're not going to; they're probably not going to pop. You're not generating right. enough force to to pop them. Usually, yeah. Actually, that's my grandma said. Scoop. Sorry, go. I said that's my grandma used to say. Scoop. <laughs> go for the scoop. What's interesting? Yeah. Did you see the uh, skull of the Dragon Man that they found in China? No. Um, this they think it might. They think he might actually be a Densovian. They're not quite really sure. They're, he's referred to as the Dragon Man. This this was just a few weeks ago. They found this. They really revealed this skull of this. You know, he's he's definitely not human. As in he as in he's one of the not alien, but one of the other human ancestors. So and they like I said, they think he might be a Denisovian. And he's got these huge ridges. The reason they call him Dragon Man is he's got these huge ridges that come forward where his eyebrows are. Like his eyebrows okay. are literally like these giant kind of spiky ridges. And it's yeah, like, look at oh. a picture of it. Oh, you found him. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you see you see what I mean? I'll include one in the show notes for the for the viewers too. <laughs> it's 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 funny, but remember that guy I talked about that would feel the kick to the nuts like ten minutes later? Yeah, no, he yeah. had eyebrows like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it's pretty interesting that like how big the eyebrow. Well, again, we don't know how much of that who are people's DNA is still mixed in with ours, right? And so we yeah. do get people who are, you know, 
somewhat uh, primitive, shall we say? You know, mixed in, mixed in. There, it's, we definitely know that Neanderthals and that they're mixed in with us. I mean, so yep. so therefore, there's there's a certain percentage of the population that has varying degrees of Neanderthal DNA, which is yep. maybe a scary thought or maybe a good thought. I've heard, rumor, I've heard some people are some claims though that they think that Neanderthals might have even actually had bigger brains than we did because their yeah, skulls that's... are bigger than us. Yeah, that's kind of the new thing is they think Neanderthals actually were what taught like the Cro-Mags how to make tools. So the guys we thought were dumb were actually the smart guys. And then we killed them once we got what we wanted from them. Yeah, isn't that how it always works? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, so you said you had a few other uh, you know lies about violence and injury about from the movies <laughs> you wanted to bring up. So let's hear them. Well, there's a lot of different things. Like I say, the big thing that you never get is the effects. And this is right. where like broken broken bones are kind of a big deal. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Because cause in real life, if you break a bone, it generally debilitates that area. Like if I break a bone in my leg, I can't move very quickly. Right. Same thing if I break a bone, even a relatively minor, like I've had cracked ribs. Mm-hmm. And oh my god, a cracked rib, even a bruised rib will just mess you up for a while because it impedes your mobility, even oh, yeah. though it's relatively little damage. Oh no, I I understand. I had oh, what's it called? But basically, inflammation of the of the tissues around the ribs, mm-hmm. um, which basically turns every breath you take into like screaming pain for a little while until yeah. it finally go into a and bruised ribs. I would imagine or cracked or even worse or about the same. So I can I can guess how much pain that is. It's it will take you out really fast. Yeah, and it's and it's not just the pain, but it's that idea that. Mm-hmm. because it damages the uh, the underlying like lever system of your bones and muscles you don't work as good you your your like your balance is off your timing gets off mm-hmm. like i i still like when i uh messed up my left shoulder mm-hmm. my timing is is still off like not debilitatingly anymore but noticeably and that was like 15 years ago because that's the other thing you don't get a lot of in, in entertainment is the long-term effects of like even relatively small injuries. And the only one I can really think of where they did that was uh, Blade Runner. That if you remember, as Deckard gets near the end okay. of the film, he is not doing good at all. <laughs> no, no, he's in very yeah. rough shape. That's why Roy Batty just smacks him around. I mean, Batty was presumably actually stronger and faster than he was to begin with. But yeah, by the end, Decker is... Well, and they did a good job of showing the idea, like when he's like you know, brushing his teeth and the cup is full of blood, and when he when he finally gets that fight at the end, he he yep, he is yep. not in any shape to fight. Remember, Bat Bat even gives him his gun back. You're going nope. to need this, and he Very like true. breaks his hand around it. And and again, that's that's the idea. You right. Don't, you don't see a lot of because I think, like you say, a lot of it is plot contrivance, and I think. A lot of it is audience expectation that mm-hmm. we, we, at least for a long time, and in different eras, we don't really understand how the effects are, so we don't have much to compare them to, even as a writer. And that was why, like, when you get to the mm. 80s, people wanted to, to, to feel good about life, and um, you get all them stupid action movies like the Ernie films that are totally cartoony because our generation mm-hmm. may have vaguely other than maybe me and Doak may have been vaguely aware of, of, of things like, you know, actual injuries and what happens in a fight. 
and by the time they were teenagers in the 80s, mm-hmm. they didn't have the exposure that, say, the guys in Nam or the guys like living in the bad part of New York did. So it was all cartoony. And then that became the yeah. standard. And then that's what everybody kind of thought it was. It was like up until, again, the 90s when the 70s happened again. Well, I, I think I can simplify it even better, um, mm-hmm. which is that think about who's actually writing these stories. Like, it's the nerds. You know, the ones who actually didn't right. get into a fight, or if they did, they went down really, really fast, right? The, it, the, uh, you're, if you're writing what you know, these yeah. people generally don't know combat. Like, they really don't. Now, in movies, presumably, you're going to have stuntmen and maybe martial arts that, who actually do understand, you know, combat and such. And, okay, okay, they can, they can add some consultants and people working on the film. Besides, the writer can fill that stuff in. But even then the writers don't really understand that kind of damage. They don't understand what that feels like. They don't understand how a lot of this stuff works. Their understanding of combat is watching movies and television and such where they've, they've seen that version of it. Yeah. That's, that's their understanding of the injury. So, you know, I, so how can you expect, so it's not even about people being to numb or such. It's just simply about the guys who actually understand it are rarely the guys writing it. Yeah, and, and, and I think, again, then it becomes ingrained in the zeitgeist. And that's that's why um, you go back to the 90s. Mm-hmm. I think when you look at a movie like uh, Saving Private Ryan, mm-hmm. that, that opening sequence where you see like the guy pick up his own arm and stuff, I think was kind of important to set that tone because that mm-hmm. was the first like, you know, like war movie we'd had for a little while that wasn't Arnie-fied. Right, yeah, yeah. And and they had to set that tone right in the very beginning to set up that expectation in the audience so that, especially, say, when they get to the end and all of the guys that die, die, mm-hmm. that you're ready for that because we hadn't written movies like that for, for a long time. That, like, right, you know, yeah. the wisecracking heroes are getting too old for this shit, but they're going to make it to the end no matter how implausibly. Yeah, no, they're not. <laughs> Yeah, and, and but the thing is they had to establish that early on to put that idea in people's minds to counteract what the audience would have been expecting otherwise. So what you're basically saying is going back to what we were talking about way earlier in that about tone, basically you have to teach the audience with every movie what the rules are for this setting. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. You're, you're, you're basically saying, okay – here are the rules. This is how this is how violence is going to be. This is how violent the story is going to be. This is how action is going to be for this movie. And the audience just subconsciously sees the rules or sees the cues and basically goes, "Okay, I get that." Yep. And 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 now they'll be shocked and horrified if you break those rules later on. And of course, it goes both ways. If you show something too extreme later on, they might be shocked and horrified. Um, unless you're doing it on purpose, but whichever. But you can also run to the opposite problem where you show brutal violence. At the, at the beginning, you say, oh, the rules are good. It's going to be really terrible. But then you don't follow up later on. Yeah. Like later on, it's kind of cartoony. You can really throw them out of it. Like you have to balance that out. Yeah. And and it's that idea that you're doing a role-playing game in reverse. Mm-hmm. That in a role-playing game, I'm telling the audience, the players, mm-hmm. they know the rules of the world up front because they have to know those rules because they're manipulating them. Whereas in a story... I have to demonstrate those rules up front because the audience is just along for the ride. Yeah, that's true. 
Yeah, it's, it's fascinating when, when you're doing storytelling and such, how much of, um, how much work you're actually doing during the first act of most stories mm-hmm. on a subconscious level. There's so many little things you're putting in to a story that's teaching the audience things and telling them because as we, I said right from the beginning, all stories are fiction by default. Because yeah. as soon as it goes through a human brain, even if it's your mother telling you about what she did today, she's telling you a fictionalized version of what she did today or a filtered or controlled version of what she did today. And yeah. so when you're going to someone else's world, so to speak, you have to actually, that's not the real world, you have to, you as the writer, I should say, have to actually tell the audience, hey, this is how this is going to be. Or if you don't, there's going to be bad consequences later on, or they'll, they'll be a little unsure. We're not sure what to, how they're supposed to react to it or how they're supposed to deal with it. And they won't like it, by the way. Yep. They, yeah. They won't like it at all because the audience, especially modern audiences, want to know what they're in for right from the beginning most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Why well, that was back in the 90s, wasn't it? That they, the uh, reason that uh, most theatrical trailers spoil the movie is because they realized they did research and found that. Most people like to know how it ends before yep. they see it. Yep. Well, at least the Marvel movies don't have that problem. Everyone knows how it's going to end right before they even see the film. So it's or the trailer. So it's not really an issue. <laughs> A blue beam shooting into the sky. No, it's going to be two characters with identical power sets beating on each other until one of them eventually submits and goes, oh, "I give up," and uh, usually because of some you know, because they're a bad person and then yeah. that's the end. And then that'll be the end. They'll either die or as a result of their actions or they'll in rarer cases escape or go to jail or something, but whatever they're, 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 they're out of the fight. But the key is it will be two characters with identical power sets beating on each other. That's how every Marvel movie ends. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> it's almost every month. They're kind of one or two exceptions, but most part that's that's the thing and, and once you realize that sorry people to spoil it once you realize that <laughs> it kind of takes a lot of the fun out of this as well as one of the reasons why the captain america movies are probably my favorite because again nobody has quote-unquote real superpowers so it's just a martial arts you know action movie for the most part it's like an over-the-top yeah. one so we don't have to worry about people with just throwing cgi beams at each other for like 20 minutes that's true i like that <laughs> I'm old school that way, um, which is every other Marvel thing possible. Yeah, CGI beam, CGI disaster. It's like, oh, so bored. Don't care. Don't want to watch that anymore. But whatever. But again, the Marvel stuff is like a, another good example of because it's family friendly entertainment. All the consequences are stripped right out. All the all the damage is stripped out. All the injury is stripped out. Characters are either active or they're not. We're back to hit points again. Yeah, because again, it, it's that idea that different kinds of attack don't have different effects. They they like yeah. knock you down, make you go, Ugh! and that's basically it. Like nobody nobody breaks a bone, nobody gets burnt, nobody gets like a limb melted off in flame, unless it's a plot point. Exactly. And so going back to role playing in DC Heroes, it's bashing damage, and Champions, it's stun only damage, and. Uh, and that's one of the things that made those systems work for superheroes is they realize that that's kind of how superhero combat works though. Yeah. You know, the, you don't break your stuff. You just get knocked around a lot. And when you, when you run out of hit points, you're done or stun points, whatever you're done. Yeah. 
And now that's a film standard, at least, well, for the Marvel films, but, you know, whatever. Superhero films in general basically follow that. Unless you're doing the super brutal, deadly superhero stuff, in which case, yeah, it's all about killing combat. <laughs> yeah. But we're not going to talk about that for now. So any other major ones you <laughs> want to bring up? I think we're going to run long if we keep going much longer. We're, we're, I think we're starting to get into a groove, and I think this is going to be another three-hour podcast if we, <laughs> if we don't wrap it up. I don't know. I think that's 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 kind of the uh, that's kind of the gist of it. We got those examples that yep. if you're writing a story, you're kind of um, two of your opponents to that story are expectation mm-hmm. and the constraints of whatever genre people think you're writing in. I say think because I I, I think there's a lot of uh, problems that when they pr- entertainment is produced, especially bigger companies play it safe. And that's why they'll play to expectation. And then that goes back mm. to the idea of why one of the reasons you don't see as, as many female action stories as male is because mm-hmm. there's that expectation that a male audience will respond more, more uh, positively. And we have a much better grasp of what a male 14 year old power fantasy looks like. Hmm. That's true. It's true. Maybe if we have better examples or and profitable examples of what a 15-year-old uh, or 14-year-old female power fantasy looks like, maybe we'll see more of those in the future. It's a magical girl story. That's what it is. <laughs> Probably. But, uh, but you'll notice that in magical girl stories, with, with a, they almost never actually physically touch each other. They're mostly about yelling magical, you know, ma- magical moonbeam attacks and things back and forth. It's all energy blast because they avoid f- actual physical violence. Yeah, because again, it's that idea that you want your main character to remain pure. You don't want to dirty mm-hmm. their hands. Oh, very true. Very true. All right. So on that note, if anyone has any questions or comments or thoughts on this subject, please drop by obeythedna.com and leave your stories of uh, violence and debauchery and injury there. So good night, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye. There you go, Cracked. How do you like it for a change? Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at ObeyTheDNA.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya! See ya!